Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Somewhere out there. Ooh. Oh, that song makes me so sad. I know. A very sad movie. Oof. I mean, a really sad set of movies there, actually, with <laughs> For Land Before Time and American Tale back to back, basically. Really uplifting. Oy, uh, oy, oy. Really uplifting stuff going on over there with Don Bluth. And Don Bluth, of course, the famous animator and visionary is the topic of today's episode of Knockback. For those unfamiliar, Collins Last Stand Knockback is a retro and nostalgia-fueled podcast that I do with my brother every week. And you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where you can get early, weekly, early access and get access to submit us questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, early access to the various topics we're going to record so you can contribute. And your support over there just helps us survive. So please do consider supporting us over on Patreon if you can. If you can't and listen on free feeds, please consider leaving us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts as it really does help us find a new audience. And we really do appreciate that very much. Dagan, this is wave six. We're in Philadelphia. You chose this wave of topics. And Don Bluth is obviously a, a great topic to choose. We went into Don Bluth a little bit when we were talking about The Lion King, actually, a few waves ago. And then again, when we did the Disney animated movies from like the mid 30s until the late 50s. Exactly. But I feel like I have a lot to learn here and I'm excited to kind of just sit back and talk to you about this and who Don Bluth is and why Don Bluth is important. And as we know, and I think the audience knows, they really do love and appreciate and respect your input on animation because not only are you an Emmy award winning animator, but of course (laughs) you have just amazing experience and insight and worked for a lot of these companies, worked on a lot of great products. And and I think more than your average bear understand what this is all about. Thank you, my friend. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. I'm excited to have this conversation. This will be a really fun one. It's one that's near and dear to my heart as well. So I think we'll have fun with this. Why did you want to choose Don Bluth to begin with? Like, what was it about like, I, I mean, I, I know why, but like, why now? Why why did you want to put Don Bluth in, in for the running here? It's an important one. On a technical level, you and I always try to balance the topics with various things. I try to, we try to pepper it with an assortment, a nice variety of things. We'll talk about a movie. We'll talk about a comic book. We'll talk about a video game. We'll talk about an animated movie, an animated film or an animator or a comic strip. It's nice to try to balance it out. Maybe a film trilogy in there, whatever you, you know, something of more personal reflection, like talking about malls or whatever. So that's, you know, one reason. But the big reason is really because he had such, Don Bluth's work had such a profound influence on me. And I think it was the first animation that really inspired me that I realized wasn't Disney as a kid. And as a young kid who was into art and eventually wanted to go on to become an animator and who was always very drawn. I was always very drawn to cartoons, always, very much so. And, you know, beyond just a normal kid's 
experience with animation and cartooning and cartoons. I really, really loved it. I sunk my teeth into it from a very young age. And Don Bluth was maybe the first thing, if not one of the first things that I realized wasn't Disney and was something different. And we'll talk much more about that and how that came to be. But he's a very important man for me. And also because also it's very he's very relevant in sort of the parlance of pop culture because not only was he did he have such an enormous impact on our generations as far as animated films, but also, as we'll talk about, in video games. So it's sort of a double whammy with Don Bluth. And that's why I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm amped up to talk about it as well, because I have a lot to learn in this respect. And, you know, I don't think I was super cognizant either as a younger person about who was making this and who was making that. I think we knew or I knew inherently what the Disney movies were, but I never thought, you know, The Land Before Time is like one of my favorite animated films. You and, love that movie. And I love American Ta- and, and American Tale as well. So it's hard to say Amer- an American Tale in a sentence. It's really, know, be- yeah, it doesn't, doesn't roll of off the, the tongue, does it? No, like I love an American Tale, though, as well. And so. <laughs> You know, there's a lot to to dissect here, but I guess we'll begin by diving into who Don Bluth is and why he's relevant and important from the early days Absolutely. and where he began, obviously, with Disney. But I'd be interested to hear about his earlier days. We'll go back. We'll go all the way back. Now, do you want to do we'll do the new our new segment? Yep, of we'll, course. So we'll, we'll roll start out with that. the new segment first. Yes. And of course, as you guys know, it's called our new segment for this round is called Truth or Dare, but Truth. Truth or Dare without the dare, in other words. And I'm asking Colin a question, maybe give Colin a little color here, you know, give him, give you a little insight into the man who is Colin Moriarty, and just little fun questions to ask, and expecting an honest and candid answer. Always. I'm always honest and candid with the audience. They know that. All right. Let's talk about this. Have you ever secretly, or not so secretly, rooted for the bad guy in a movie? Oh, certainly. Okay. Tell me so. about that. Let me think here. It's kind of a this. tough one. Seems obvious, but then when you th- really think about it, I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I I guess you're not really rooting for the bad guy's ends, but you're rooting for the for some sort of interesting conclusion or interesting kind of triumph, I guess, by the the good guys over the bad guy. I guess that's fine, but the villains are always more attractive to me. I mean, the villains, we talked about this even on the G.I. Joe episode, like the villains have always been more attractive to me. I don't know that I'm really thinking about their goals, their nefarious deeds. Right. And I don't know. I mean, shit, we talked about in The Sopranos, we kind of root for Tony Soprano. Sure. When we did The Sopranos knockback episode, you kind of root for him in a way, even though he's clearly a bad person, you almost don't want to see him get his comeuppance. And obviously one of the great conversations about the Sopranos is whether he got his comeuppance or not and whether people wanted him to have gotten his comeuppance at the end of the last episode of the last season. So that's a great example. And I think that people even look at Breaking Bad and Mad Men and other shows in a similar way. Ozark is another great example of a recent show. It's excellent. You have to watch that. That's all about money laundering and you kind of root for them as well. Although that's a little more gray and I think Breaking Bad's a little more gray too. So yeah, I I think that it's not uncommon to, to root for the villain in a way or root for the bad guy if he's the protagonist or he's the most or he or she is the most interesting person there. Yeah. But I don't think you necessarily do want to detach rather maybe the goals and what they're actually doing from the character. I don't know that in real life I've ever rooted for the bad guy. You know what I mean? Or the, well, exactly. Yeah. But in fiction, fiction. certainly. Yeah. And you were a big fan of like Darth Maul. Yeah. I love Darth Maul. You like Darth Maul, but I know what you're saying. Sometimes you just think they're cooler and more interesting. They look cooler. They have a cooler appearance. Maybe their, you know, their attitude is a little more, 
compelling. Not that you're necessarily rooting for them, but you enjoy watching them on screen. Yeah, and you know? the Metal Gear Solid episode that we just recorded that I think will go live before this one. I don't know, though, for sure. I mean, we spent much more time talking about the villains in that than we did talking about Solid Snake, Absolutely. the protagonist, even though we play a Solid Snake, even though we like Solid Snake. And even though the bad guys in Metal Gear Solid and the original Metal Gear Solid are seizing nuclear weapons and trying to extort the American government. I mean, you're... <laughs> You're not really rooting for them, but they're still interesting. Psychomantis <laughs> is still a more interesting character than Solid Snake. I yeah, think. they're just and they're fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. Very so, good. yeah, good I think answer. that that's kind of where I stand on that. Good answer, my friend. Thank you. So should we talk about Don Bluth? Yeah. So let's man. So let's begin. Legend? Yeah. So let's begin by talking about Don Bluth. And I guess we'll talk about his origins. I don't know if you want to start with him, his collegiate days or whatever. But I think honestly, like the place that we need to obviously begin is with his time at Disney and the films he worked on Disney. I mean, I kind of look at this conversation in multiple ways, like the the Disney days and then kind of his severance from Disney and what that was all about and who went with him and who didn't and how that kind of affected Disney and how that kind of affected him. And then moving on, obviously, to the 70s and 80s when his movies were really at their peak and video games. Yeah. So we can talk about those things as well. So I'm excited about it. And I think that that's what's so interesting about this Don Bluth conversation is, yeah, Mostly animated film, but also kind of a player in games as well. And so yeah. we should certainly talk about both. Early on as well. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's also, Kyle, he's also, I don't know how much people know about this. We're going to really delve into Don Bluth. And it's a very animation nerd centric topic. So I hope the people that enjoy that, I think they'll they'll definitely enjoy this, I hope. And he's a very polarizing figure as well. And we'll talk about that because he made a lot of enemies along the way. And... It's very interesting to explore his then and now relationships with some other famous animators and some other people in the animation spotlight then and now and their relationships and why it was that way and why the bad blood sprung up. And I think that that's a big part of the story. That's a big part of the fun of the story, I think, too, as well, and why he's such a polarizing figure. So we'll jump into all that. We won't hold back. We'll talk about everything. A lot of this stuff was is, was kind of hard to dig up, but actually in researching this episode, and again, I'll say part of the joy of this show, doing the show for me is because I'm so interested in these topics to begin with. It's such a pleasure for me. And even though I consider myself a bit of an animation historian, I'm quite passionate about reading about animators and, and animation and productions of the past and the things that have, have inspired me and have inspired us. But you could always dig deeper and you could always find more, especially now with the internet. And, you know, say what you want about the Internet and all the bad things that come along with it. But having that amount of research and that amount of resources at our fingertips is so fun. And I found out some stuff I didn't know uh, in researching this topic. So that was a lot of fun, too, for me. So we'll get started, Kyle, if you don't mind. Please. By just talking about who he is, where he came from, so on and so forth. So just to give you an eight, Don Bluth is still also, to put this in context for yourselves, Don Bluth and his partners are still working and still animating today. And he also is very involved in a series of, which I guess is kind of a lucrative venture for him. He's very involved in animation workshopping and classes and instructional things as well today, which is cool because you're passing along that knowledge and we'll explore that knowledge and his, his genius and where that comes from and the people that helped him along and the people he learned from as well. So we'll, we'll explore all of that. So he was born in September of 1937, and he's from Texas. He's from El Paso. But at age six, he moved to Utah with his family, and I think he had a very large Mormon family. He was involved, very much 
involved. He, he and his family were very much involved with the Church of Latter-day Saints, which I don't know very much about, but it plays very much into his background and sort of his, as we'll see, his sort of trajectory and his education and where he went and what he did before animation and even after and then when he came back to animation. So he had a little bit of a circuitous path, and we'll get into that. So at age of six, he moved to Utah with his family. And when he was a teenager, he actually moved with his family briefly to Santa Monica before moving back again to Utah. And I think moving to Santa Monica might be, you know, he was always a kid that was into art and he was into drawing. But I think in Santa Monica, he might have got a little glimpse of that Hollywood-esque Disney thing going on, especially in Disney in their heyday in the 40s and 50s, probably in the late 40s for Don Bluth. And then he returned to Utah, actually, in time to graduate for high school. So by this time, he already moved around a bunch and went to, actually, I believe he went to Brigham Young University for a year and then dropped out to start at Disney as a young man. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, like so often is the course with a lot of these guys, a lot of these famous animators, they established a correspondence with Disney from a young age. And sent them fan letters and, hey, you know, I'm a kid and I'm really interested in animation and becoming an animator. How do I become an animator? Here's some of my drawings. What do you think of them? And the guys back in the 40s and into the 50s were very good about corresponding with their young fans. And you always hear this, especially with old and even with the older guy, you know, the next generations that came along, like guys like Andreas Deja and Glenn Keane, they all have a lot of, I think Brad Bird did the same thing. They all had this passion from a young age about animation and actually took the volition to sort of get in touch with people at the studio and say, hey, I'm really into this. You know, these were like the real animation nerds that went on to do it for a living. You know, they, they established that nerdum from a young age. And Don Bluth, I believe, was the same way. And they put him on at a very young age. He went to work for Disney in 1955, he started there. He started at Disney as an assistant animator to one of the nine old men, one of Disney's nine old men, which was sort of the, again, sort of the who's who of anime. They were the animators, animators at the, at the studio. They were the top animators. They were the top guys, these nine old men. And there was one of them named John Lounsbury, who was supposed to be a very sweet man, actually. He went to work as an assistant animator on Sleeping Beauty, for John Lansbury, I'm not sure what John Lansbury supervised, which character he was supervising, or which sequences he, he was supervising on Sleeping Beauty. But anyway, Don Bluth went to work there. And to start as an assistant animator in the 50s was actually also pretty striking. He usually didn't start that high. So as an assistant animator, to clarify, he was probably working as an in-betweener. In other words, filling in between the key drawings that John Lansbury did for the sequence. A key animator does the key drawings of a sequence. In other words, the key storytelling poses or the key dynamic poses or the key, whatever that scene is. It could be a medium shot with acting. It could be a, a wider shot that expresses a lot more physicality and dynamic action. Whatever it is, the animator sort of lays in the blueprint, lays in the key drawings, and then the assistant works with the animator's drawings and an exposure sheet which says, okay, there's supposed to be eight drawings in between my drawing three and drawing four. You figure out where they, here's the spacing chart. You figure out where it goes. You know, it sort of eases out of, it sort of eases out of drawing three and then snaps to drawing four. So they establish the drawings and the timing and then the assistant animator kind of fills in the blanks. So that's where he started with Disney. 
And he only stayed for two years, started in 55 and only stayed for two years. And then he went abroad again, his sort of religious background playing into it. Apparently he went abroad to Argentina on a mission for the Latter-day Saints church. And then when he came back two and a half years later, he actually resumed his employment at Disney, but he, as a freelancer. So I guess I'm, I'm assuming he was still, still an assistant animator, picking up scenes, whatever, you know, he had already established himself as a talent. And I guess they liked him enough to sort of flow him work gradually as a freelancer. And he did that for quite a while, actually, and then went back to Brigham Young to receive his degree in English Lit, which is actually pretty ironic. And I wrote this down. I was very surprised to hear that because he's highly criticized for his story. Actually, it's funny you say that. Play, I, break, give it to me. Because friend. as you guys know, on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, if you support us at the $2 a month level or higher, like I said earlier, you get access to the topics before we publish them, before we record these episodes. And then you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas as we got. And we only got a few for about about Don Bluth, which is perfectly fine with me. But Jason Bola wrote into us and said, many Bluth movies have such a high caliber of animation. But growing up, the stories and characters didn't always grab me. Do you feel his storytelling may have been his weakness leaving Disney overall, as there are obvious exceptions? And it's interesting because you and I had talked about that on a previous one. I never really thought about that, is that that is considered, I guess, his Achilles Absolutely. heel. So that Absolutely. is ironic, and I didn't know that. Everybody you know. says it. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that he was very involved? He graduated with an English lit degree. Not only that, but he was very involved in theater. He actually started a theater with his brother at, cer- at a certain point after graduating, and that's what he did for his livelihood. And today, I just found out today, even to this day, he's a very, I think he lives, he lives somewhere in Arizona. I'm not sure where. But he has actually one of his homes he kind of like leases out for free to like drama troops and lets them use it. He has basically he's still involved in theater and is very into that. And isn't that funny because story and storytelling and that whole literature background, that whole being steeped in that is such a big part of that. But he's really thought of and we'll get much, much more into this. He's he's very much thought of as the animator with an extreme sense of draftsman. He's extremely brilliant draftsman. I mean, the man could draw his ass off. Even for feature animators, even for people good enough to do it for a living in the feature film world, which is the best of the best. He's the best of them. His drawing and his character design and the, the amount of appeal in his drawing and sort of his, that whole thing, and being an animator and actually being a classical animator is where he really made his mark. Story is definitely widely, it's widely seen that story is where his, exactly, that that's his weakness, that's his Achilles heel. And I think that's very much, I think we'll, we'll get into his story and sort of his rise and fall and rise and fall again, but I think the story is where he was really lacking. And we'll get, I want to get much more into that and go into my own theories about that as well. Yeah, please. I mean, that'd be great. So, all right, so he... Works for Disney. He goes on this mission, as many Mormons do. He comes back as a freelancer. And where does this kind of leave him from there? So interestingly, when he came back and was freelancing for Disney, and I think he did it for quite a while, maybe six or seven years, he actually went into TV animation from there in 1967-ish. He went to go work for Filmation. When I think of Filmation, I always think of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. But Filmation... A famous TV animation studio akin to your Hanna-Barbera's, your Ruby Spears, those sort of big animation shops that were 
churning out television animation for North America. And this was a whole different thing. He come, you know, remember Don Bluth is steeped in feature animation from this standpoint and was trained by some of the nine old men. So from this point on, 1967, going to work in, a, in the layout department of Filmation. Now, this was also a very pivotal time in television animation because this is a, in the 60s, various parts of the 60s was when animation was largely subcontracted out to the Asian studios at that time. At that time, being much of it being relegated to Japan because Japan wasn't yet expensive enough to be like, well, why don't we just keep it in the States? We're sending it to Japan. It's just as expensive as doing the United States. Now it's largely, you know, of course, the Philippines, Korea and the Philippines, but then it was Japan. And this is when they started, the, the North American company started to send their animation out. So the people in the States would do the storyboards. They would do the layout, which is sort of blocking the animation. And they would send the actual animation overseas. So he worked as a layout artist for Filmation on series like The Archies and stuff like that. Which is funny because it's kind of a step back, but it's possible that Disney wasn't offering full-time employment at that time. Maybe he needed a, he needed full-time work. So he's at, he was at Filmation. It seems like he was at Filmation for about four or five years doing this layout for the t- various TV series of that time, late 60s, early 70s. And then in 1971, he returned to Disney full-time as an animator, and he worked on Robin Hood. Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2, which I was trying to think back if, I saw, if I've seen that film. I don't know that I have. It might be Disney's first feature-length Winnie the Pooh, but I'm not positive about that. But I don't know if I've ever seen that one, so my curiosity was piqued by that one. He also worked on The Rescuers and eventually went to work as a directing animator with his own team on Peach Dragon, which I don't know if you would remember, Kyle, or if you saw it, but it was a hybrid live action and animation project that had both things in it. Pete uh, himself was actually an animated character in a live action movie, and Don Bluth was in charge of directing the animation for that. And then he went on to do, and I'm very curious to know how many people know about this one. And actually, believe it or not, my wife, Helene, is actually the one years ago who brought this animated short to my attention. I had never heard of it before. There's an animated Christmas special that Disney did in the late 70s. They might have started production of it in the mid-70s called The Small One. And it's about, it's a short form animated film. I think it's about 22 minutes long, if I'm not mistaken. It's a Christmas special, a holiday special that they made for television that features a donkey character that basically is this donkey character, this family in, I guess they're in Jerusalem somewhere has a a bunch of donkeys and they have to sell one is getting old and he's kind of useless and he can't work and he can't lift anything. So the father is forced, his father and son, and he's forced to sell small one to make a little money for him because he's no longer useful. And the boy, it's like the boy, the donkey is the boy's best friend. So it turns out that nobody really wants him. He's kind of useless the one person who expresses interest in the donkey, it ends up that he wants to tan him for his hide. And so it's like a very, you know, it's becoming a very tragic story. Nobody wants this thing. The only person that wants this this poor old donkey is, you know, somebody that wants him for his, for his skin. And it turns out that 
sort of a not it's an it's not a very heavy-handed religious message but sort of what happens is a man comes along and says at the end of the you know towards the end of the film I need somebody to carry my my pregnant wife to Bethlehem and this would be the perfect donkey so it ends up that the small one this donkey that nobody wanted was the one that carried baby Jesus to Bethlehem and that was the whole thing now for whatever reason Disney Maybe it was that it was too overtly religious. I don't know. But Disney really kind of buried Disney, which is Disney's habit, especially in the 70s and 80s, buried a bunch of stuff that no one had ever heard of before. You know, they might have been things that didn't have a lot of shine from the beginning. They weren't very recognized or maybe it didn't. It never got a lot of airplay and they sort of suppressed it and buried it. And I think the small one was kind of one of those things. But it's the first thing that Don Bluth directed. And it's the last thing he did at Disney's. It's the last thing he ever worked on over there in the late 70s. It's actually one of Helene's favorite Christmas specials. And I remember her showing it to me and I didn't believe her because I, I guess, you know, I met Helene, you know, in art school and, you know, I thought I knew everything. Like there's an animation I never heard of, sim- very similar to the Rankin and Bass short that I talk about or the Rankin and Bass Christmas holiday right. special. I won't ruin it that we talk about during our Christmas holiday memories episode. I was like, no, that's impossible. I could not. There can't be something I never heard of. And sure enough, it was this thing, and she got it. I remember Helene got it probably in the late 90s on VHS, and we would watch it. You know, and it's it's interesting. It's actually really interesting because, and I could see this kind of plays into why Bluth ends up leaving Disney. So it's a, it's sort of a perfect conduit into what I'm about to say. It's an interesting film because you could see that even though it's supposed to be a feature film quality piece, it actually was really pretty the quality of the film was actually pretty poor in terms of the animation in terms of the art in terms of the design there's really nothing doing there's nothing special about it it's very you know it's very meh for lack of a better term and the animation is not very good in it it's almost like a tv quality piece with you know he, here and there you see an inkling of what they were trying to do but it was and what happened was really d- during this time disney was really trying to tamp down animation they weren't putting a lot of stock in it ron miller was the president at the time of disney at the time and he really was trying to cut corners there was a lot of corner cutting they didn't want to spend a lot of money on animation at this point what was obviously long gone the nine old men were retired the next generation of guys, I guess, just weren't really bringing it. And the younger generation was just getting, you know, the John Lasseters, the Tim Burtons, the Henry Selleck's, all of those guys, the Glenn Keens, they were just coming into it. The Don Bluths, they didn't have enough power. And Bluth, sort of Bluth and his camp, his sort of inner, inner circle now of being in charge of, you know, a certain amount of Disney and being sort of going, sort of rising to the top relatively quick. You know, it's hard to rise to the top quickly in animation. It's usually that's usually something that goes on of proving yourself over a set amount of time. And he rose, you know, I think a lot of the controversy comes from him rising to the top really quickly and I think that caused a lot of hard feelings. And but it was due due to his extreme talent and passion, but he was very frustrated with that lack of quality. They didn't want to spend a lot of money on effects animation. They didn't want to do a lot of stuff that we'll see later on in The Secret of Nim that we're sort of doing in spades where it was like all these effects, practical effects where they were doing colored gel under the glass of the Oxbury camera and all these things that cost a lot of money and time. Disney didn't want to do this stuff anymore. They didn't want to pay for it. 
and it led to a lot of frustration on Bluth's side and sort of the Bluth camp, him and his other, you know, his inner circle at Disney were very frustrated with that. And sure enough, in 1979, supposedly on Don Bluth's 42nd birthday, he left. He left Disney with another fellow animator and longtime business partner, Gary Goldman, and sort of the third wheel and sort of the unsung hero of the group that we'll get much more into, an animator named John Pomeroy. The three of them left and then ultimately took somewhere between, I think ultimately they took another 14 people that didn't necessarily leave right away. Now, when Don Bluth left Disney, I have learned that the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Hollywood Reporter, all these publications, it was very, they were very interested in it because I think it was kind of public knowledge at this point that Disney, especially Disney animation, was sort of dying. It was dying on the vine. And I think when they saw that there was this mass exodus, was it really a mass exodus? I'm not sure. We'll get into more into that. But that this key guy and his people left and not only left, but left to basically start their own thing to compete with Disney. This was never done before. And there's a couple of never done befores in this story. That's the first one. And the, the press really picked up picked this up and ran with this story. And we're talking about it for a long time. But it's factual that it's important to realize that when Bluth and Goldman and Pomeroy left and maybe a couple others, the others that followed behind, you know, that made up maybe two dozen people, trickled out of the studio slowly. John Pomeroy's wife, Lorna, left, but it wasn't right away. And it wasn't only animators. It was a collection of animators, background artists, layout artists, character designers, So menagerie story people, people that you would need. All those key people that you would need. Now, Don Bluth has said that what had happened was this. Don Bluth was actually working on a short... We'll get to this. He was working on a piece literally working in his in his garage on nights and weekends he and the other key people John Pomeroy Gary Goldman they were working on a project that night in literally in Don Bluth's garage while they still were at Disney for a couple of years so this was already in the offing okay and we'll get into what the project was i want to talk much more about it because it doesn't get a lot of it doesn't get a lot of talk not a lot of people talk about it when they talk about Don Bluth and i think it's very important to talk about but when they left. He said that every, almost every person in that studio at that time, now you're talking about a lot of guys that are still relevant today. Glenn Keane, Brad Bird, John Lasseter was over there. I don't know if, if Tim Burton was over there, but he said literally every creative that was in that place came through his garage at one point or another, whether it was on a night or a weekend to check out what they were doing. And it was sort of a vetting pro- He said it was sort of a vetting process of like who – curiosity was peaked enough to take a risk and who was like, ah, fuck this guy type right, of thing. Right, right. And that was sort of how he built and how he vetted the people that he kind of surrounded himself with to start something. And he said, everybody came through at one point. It was just the people that stuck with him or the people that said, ah, screw this guy, I'm sticking with Disney. And that kind of divided it into two factions. And I thought that was really interesting. It is. What was Disney's reaction to this poaching and this like leaving? With I mean, they this, were this made very. It was bad blood, I assume. Yeah, and it was very much in the press. There was a back and forth in the press, not only from Don Bluth's side, and it was especially. I don't know if anyone else really spoke, but Don Bluth, as far as saying why he left and sort of finger pointing and stuff. But Ron Miller and those guys, you know, on the Disney camp, sort of giving that whole sour grapes thing, like it's better off. They were causing a schism. 
And they were sort of a, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Ron Miller referred to it as a cancer that needs to be excised anyway. So the fact that they excised themselves was actually a positive thing. But I think that it was probably worrisome because whatever was left of Disney animation, could this could not have helped. You have a key guy who they were sort of banking on as a big part of the next generation. Again, you had other guys there that kind of stuck in with Disney, not only the old veteran guys like your Bernie Mattinsons and stuff like that, who actually came up with the nine old men in the forties and was still there. Norm Ferguson, um, not Norm Ferguson. I forget his name, but guys like Bernie Mattinson, but the new generation like Glenn Keane and John Lasseter, the guys that stuck in with Disney. Now Lasseter would go on to get fired eventually. And there's also a lot of int- really interesting animosity between Brad Bird and Don Bluth to this day. And I'll tell you how I initially learned about it. I learned about it in person from Brad Bird. And of course, if you guys don't know who Brad Bird is, he's a key creative at Pixar. He also went on to be a, a pretty a live action director of some renown directing. He directed two Mission Impossible movies. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. About those movies. But anyway, he's the creator and director of The Incredibles and The Incredibles 2. And of course, the Iron. Before he went to Pixar, Iron. Everybody, any animation fan would know Iron Giant. Brad, that's Brad Bird, who is another guy, who is a you know he's younger than Don Bluth. You know, again, remember Don Bluth started at Disney in the fifties, and only came back in the seventies. So he was already a really seasoned guy by this time. And we'll get into the anima into the animosity and the bad blood between Brad Bird and Don Bluth because it's kind of it's actually kind of fascinating. But so Don Bluth, when he left, this sort of battle was in the press about, you know, sort of Ron Miller's camp and Don Bluth's camp going back and forth about why they left. But the fact of the matter was that Don Bluth had business partners already lined up for what he wanted to do and broke away in order to take a risk and do it. And you have to, no matter what happened, no matter where the story went from here, you have to give Don Bluth a lot of credit. He left a very prestigious position at... Disney. I mean, Disney wasn't then what it was now or what it once was in its heyday in the 40s and 50s, but it was still Walt Disney Animation. For an animator, that's still where you wanted to be. Did you want to go work at Filmation, which was still a job, or did you want to go work for Disney? And he was he was the cream rising to the top of Disney and left at his pinnacle in his 40s to take a risk and start his own thing. And that had never been done to this degree before. Where it was a it was a palpable thing. I can imagine, I always imagine this, Kyle, being a young animator, whether I was still in school or in my late teens or early to mid-20s, about how if you were passionate about animation and you sort of saw the business dying, animation, not only Disney, but animation in general is sort of taking a big downturn in the 70s. To have something like this, to have a shot in the arm like this, of a Don Bluth must have been so exciting and what he was promising and what he was sort of saying he was going to bring to the table, which was a return to high budget, high gloss, beautifully done classical animation. Not what he perceived as Disney turning all those wonderful things that were created by the nine old men and their precursors and their mentors not turning feature animation into TV animation, which which was, in effect, what Disney was doing by, you know, sort of taking the luster away and taking the budget away and sort of cutting all the corners. He was going to return to classic high-budget animation. Didn't, you know, doesn't matter how much it cost high-budget animation. And he did. 
He, he truly did. And we'll get into his first couple of projects. You know, another fascinating thing that I should mention as a, as a real, you know, this might not appeal to the masses, but as a really, really big animation nerd myself, I always wondered, and knowing a lot of the names, a lot of the names of the animators then and now, whether they were a household name or not, I know who they are because I've, I've rec- I study this stuff. N- wanting to know who the people were that left with him. Like, who were the exact people that left with him? It took a lot of digging for me to find that out. And there was an old animation newsletter, a real nerdy-centric animation newsletter in the 70s and 80s that actually covered this story in depth. When this podcast goes up, when this episode of Knockback goes up, remind me, you guys remind me, I'll post this article, the link to this article. It's fascinating. It tells you everybody who left, what they did, and when they left in the timeline as far as when Don Bluth left and then oh, sort of started that avalanche. And it was about a half a dozen people. It was about a half a dozen. It was about two dozen people who left with him to start this initial venture. And it always spoke to me. And there's a couple of guys. There's one guy who I'm actually friendly with on Instagram, a guy named Will Finn, wonderful animator. I actually didn't know he, he had been around this long, but he his name is in the credits of Banjo the Woodpile Cat, which is the little project that they worked on before The Secret of Nim. So it's actually kind of cool, and it's actually kind of cool when Will likes my drawings and co- maybe comments on something here and there. And I actually wanted to ask him, I was actually fixing to ask him, Will, I saw your name. You know, it's always, I'm always jazzed to talk to you. I know, you know, your work is so beautiful. And I saw your name in the credits of Banjo. Can you tell me who the people le- that left with Don are? Like, can you speak to this? Because I know you were around with him. But I didn't have to. I ended up finding it. But it's kind of cool that I know guys like, you know, not know personally, but have some connection to guys like that. I'm very jazzed by that. It's you know, awesome. there's, there's another guy that was around in the 70s at places like Nelvana that worked on, we'll get into more, more into their content in another podcast sometime. But this guy named Chuck Gamage, who is an old timer who's still very involved and, you know, wonderfully talented, a genius, and somebody who I've had the chance to have some sort of relationship with over the years, who I've worked with on stuff in a development capacity. And that, that always tickles me because these guys have been around and rubbed elbows with some of the greats. Yeah, so you have like a six degrees of separation. You know, which is kind of, which is I really, love that. I for love that me, stuff. so great. tickled by that. Oh my God, you know? of course, dude. So I'm talking a lot, so, I'm, and I'm, I apologize. So no, I'm I mean, well, it's a, it's a, uh, this is a podcast. So that's what you do on it. And this is a, I mean, I, I, I said at the beginning, I set it all up that I want to sit back and I'm learning and I'm listening as we go as well. I, I love it. I mean, we've covered so much already. And I think that this kind of, this is the kind of storytelling that, that people enjoy on, on podcasts. I'm so glad. please I'm continue glad. to talk. It would be as if I was talking about 311 or something like that. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you have, you would have no input on that. You would just listen <laughs> that and probably would be not t- be as interested in that as I am in this. <laughs> I'd be pretty interested in that. So anyway, we should talk about the first project that they were working on. Again, Don and Gary and John Pomeroy, they were working on this project a little bit. So they were working on sort of their passion project. And this was sort of the proving grounds for what they wanted to do. And it was uh, a 27-minute animated short, full feature animation called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And I'll tell you guys right now, Don Bluth might get a little mad at me. As of the recording of this podcast, it's actually up on YouTube. Pretty, pretty nice quality. So if you guys are interested in watching this, go check it out. Half hour. It's a really nice piece of animation history. And again, it's the piece, it's the piece of animation that these guys were using as their demo reel. 
and sort of the proving grounds for what they were capable of. And, and, you know, again, only 27 minute, not feature length quality, but the, again, this was sort of the thing that they were using to sort of make their stamp and saying, look, we could do this. We don't need Disney. And look, it's, it's worth it. So Banjo, the woodpile cat. And, you know, again, a reminder that we'll get much more into the other players besides Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, who are always on the tip of everybody's tongue when everybody talks about Bluth Productions. But there's a lot of other guys to talk about and a lot of and, and girls as well. There's a lot of a lot of really brilliant people went along with Don on this and he, he couldn't have done it without them. No, of course. And that's why it's so interesting about who left with him and why and kind of how they all filled in this roster of necessary positions, you know? Absolutely. I'm fascinated by it. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. Now I have a bunch of, I want to, I want to summarize Banjo for you guys. I don't want to leave it out. I want to give you plenty of information on it. So as I look for it here, Kyle, well, I'm curious, we're talking about the, the severance between Bluth and Disney and kind of the people that went along, but how active was the poaching? Because you were talking about, how people would go to the garage and it was kind of a vetting process and they would obviously kind of get glacially get these people to come along. But like how active was it and how legal was that for him to kind of even try to coerce people away? Because I know I learned over time using the word poaching is actually a lot of people use it as a misnomer, you know, as, as acquiring talent. But there's something, I guess, more sinister about the act of poaching someone or at least seemingly sinister about it. Sure. Is, so is the bad blood, does the bad blood or is the bad blood also derived from that, that not only did he leave, not only did people go with him, but that he was actively courting them? Because that's the kind of stuff that really does cause bad blood in, in other industries as well. Absolutely. And supposedly, I should also mention when they left. Now, Don Bluth, the last thing he worked on was not a small one. It was actually the Fox and the Hound. But not only Don, but a lot of these, you know, John Pomeroy, I'm sure, Gary Goldman, these guys were all animators. They were all working on Fox and the Hound. They're uncredited on the film because they left in the middle of it. And supposedly it caused some pretty substantial delays with the film with Don and his stable of people leaving. I believe they were sequence supervisors and character supervisors on that film, a lot of these guys. So this was not, these were not junior people only junior people and assistant animators that left. Some of those guys left too. Some of the younger talent left too. But these were key guys that walked off basically during a production. So that the fact that they jammed up production was also another thing. They didn't leave sort of gracefully or give notice or say, you know, how can we work this out? We're in the middle of production. Can you wait till the production's over? They left with some purpose and there was definitely animosity. And I think the poaching thing, I'm glad you brought that up, Kyle. I think the poaching, sort of the poaching label is inescapable because in effect, you are poaching people. You are not leaving by yourself. You're leaving with other people. So it is a mutiny of sorts. You know, it definitely, it just is. Right. I think, I think the difference between the, like the idea of poaching and the idea of not poaching has something to do with like a person leaves and maybe goes somewhere else and courts other people, but there's a there's a process or an interview process, no guarantees, as opposed to walking up to a person like a headhunter would and be like, just the position is yours if you want it. I think that's kind of the difference. So guaranteeing someone some sort of stability and some sort of employment, I think, is the is the major key difference and is considered, I think, somewhat dishonorable in some business you know, sectors, I, I, which I would totally understand. Absolutely. Well. You yeah. could totally you could totally see how that would be. That would cause a lot of bad blood and a lot of animosity. You know, a lot of people say he was very prideful. You know, there's a lot of stories from the from the studio at that time when he was sort of had he was having his comeuppance at Disney and he was sort of rising to the top. A lot of people said that he want he very he very much he admits to very much admiring Walt's philosophy 
and sort of his commitment to a quality product and his commitment to an entertaining product and his commitment to innovating and his commitment to not cutting corners no matter what. And his committing to saying it's okay to spend the extra money. The money's going to come when everybody is drooling over our film and we're making something special and we're making something that no one else is capable of making. That was really Walt's philosophy. That was the foundation of Disney and that was the foundation that was laid that they built their product upon. And I know that Don Bluth really admired that sort of philosophy and that sort of approach. And when that started to die at Disney, he really took exception to it. A lot of people say he was very prideful and that he wanted to be Walt. And I think he kind of carried a big stick. I could see Don Bluth sort of walking around. I could see that there, I, you know, supposedly he was pretty aloof. He was very set in his ways. You know, another anecdote that I should relate is we talked about on this podcast before, Milt Call, who was sort of the head of the nine old men. He was the most revered of the nine old men of Disney's Walt's original stable of lead animators and supervising animators. Milt was sort of, he's still today seen as one of the best who ever lived in terms of draftsmanship and drawing ability and in terms of just raw animation. I mean, Richard Williams, the animator Richard Williams, who's another brilliant, not only a brilliant animator himself, but an aficionado and a lover and a passion of animation history has talked about studying with Milt and Richard Williams himself being like a, having like re, no exaggeration, like Rembrandt like drawing skills to say Milt Call was easily the best that ever lived is a widely recognized thing by animators. And the fact that Milt, there's a there's a lecture. I don't know if Brad Bird put it out or one of the other guys at that time, Ron Musker or I don't I'm not sure who, but somebody recorded it on cassette. The Nine Old Men, Cal Arts. California Institute of the Arts was deeply linked to Disney because Walt actually paid for that and sustained that school from very early on. I think it was called Trenard's Art Institute or something before it became CalArts. And Walt always sort of bled money into that school and sort of became a training ground for Disney animators to learn life drawing, to learn how to draw the figure, to learn the principles of animation. And Cal Arts to this day is a very prestigious art school, one of the best one of the best animation schools in our in our country. I would put it up there with Ringling, RISD, SCAD, you know, SCAD, a couple of you know, art some of the schools in New York, SVA. But Cal Arts was a very important school and sort of funded by Disney. And they used to the nine old men sort of upon their retirement, whether they were around retirement age or retiring, they came into lecture the younger generation of students like the Brad Birds and the John Lasseters and the guys that were there at the time. Well, somebody has a lecture. Milt Call went there to lecture and he, Milt Call in the lecture is talking about some of the young talent in the studio at that time. This is probably the late sixties, early seventies. And he refers to Don, if I'm not mistaken, he refers to Don Bluth by name. Now for Milt Call to evoke anybody's name was not, he was critical of the, he was critical, verbally critical, outwardly critical of the other nine old men who were like the other eight geniuses at the studio. Right. So for Don, for Milt Call to evoke anybody else's name, he was a known, super talented, but a known curmudgeon, very critical, very difficult man, apparently, but a genius. So for him to evoke Don Bluth's name, I think that was something, again, that Brad Bird always took exception to. And Brad Bird might have been sitting in the room at that time. Again, Don Bluth being an older animator than Brad Bird, much older man than Brad Bird. I think Don Bluth's in his 80s now. 
So for again, as an anecdote, for Milk Call to evoke Don Bluth's name is was saying something. That definitely pricked the ears of a lot of people. And it was for a reason because Don Bluth was an extremely adept draftsman. The, no, there's very few people, including Brad. I love Brad Bird. I think Brad Bird is a genius when it comes to creativity and story. Brad Bird can't draw anything like Don Bluth. You know, he's just Don Bluth is just masterful artist. What do you, when you say when you use the term draftsman, what does that mean? In so that to just refers. The... That's a great question. I should break that down. That just refers to raw drawing ability, drawing the figure. Being a stre- extremely adept. Think about an artist that could just sit down and draw a figure in any position. Just knows the anatomy of the hand. Knows the anatomy of turning a head. Knows the anatomy of the muscles and the musculature in the torso. Whatever it is. Just a very sharp draftsman. You know, there's cartoonists. You know, I, I would break it down in animation. It's kind of complicated. And now with the advent of CG animation, it becomes even a little more complicated because there are there are brilliant animators at Pixar, for instance, geniuses that can't draw. Okay, so you have those guys that are just inherently... That's so weird to me. Isn't that a strange thing? Yeah. But the computer is such a tool and something that people don't think about, not to get off on a, on a tangent too much, but something that the average layman, quote unquote, doesn't think about with animation is animation is a lot more than just drawing. It's performance. It's staging, it's clarity, it's timing, it's spacing. There's a lot more to animation than just drawing. And if you have those other things, if you know spacing, if you know timing, if you know entertainment, if you know how, to, how long to hold on a pose to achieve clarity, if, if you know how to contrast one pose into the next pose to get a good clean silhouette, if you know appeal, if you know squash and stretch, if you know... All the principles of animation, you really don't need, and you're animating in the computer with rigs that were built for you by modelers, and you don't even know modeling. If you just know how to move that rig around, and you know how to make it work, and you know how to make it move, whether you're doing something cartoony or you're doing something more realistic, if you know how to make it move convincingly and entertainingly, that's being an animator. It's not just drawing anymore. But there's always been different schools of animators. Who who's more who has more of a graphic appeal to their design? Who actually can design a character and animate it? And who's that animator that needs the character design provided to them? Who's the animator that draws more cartoony and has a nice appeal in their drawing, like a Mickey Mouse or a Dopey or a Doc from or you know, a Donald Duck or a SpongeBob? Right or who's the masterful of that sort of thing? But then who's more masterful at drawing the figure? You know who's more masterful at drawing like a Princess Daphne, or Dirk the Daring, or a convincing owl? You know a, a more realistic owl or an anthropomorphic animal that you need a little more convincing human movement that stands on two legs. So Don Bluth was really that guy in the tradition of like a Milk Call or a. Frank Thomas or who else can I, an Ollie Johnston, some of those other nine old men, Mark Davis, of course, one of those guys that were sort of picking up the mantle of those famous draftsmen in animation, Freddie Moore, going back generations to the thirties, Freddie Moore and Norm Ferguson and Bill Teitla, all those guys that were just brilliant draftsmen, Richard guys like Richard Williams. So that he was of that ilk. And even geniuses like John Lasseter and Brad Bird and Ron Musker and all the John Musker and all these other guys, they didn't have that. They didn't have that. Even guys like Tim Burton, they had a different type of genius. 
who was a better director, who was, had the leadership qualities, who was a visionary like Tim Burton. But Don Bluth was sort of of that ilk and sort of of that old school, like just an a classically trained animator. He just drew like a god, basically, you know, for me. And that's really what he was bringing to the table. So for him to, I could see him kind of being highfalutin, especially in just seeing what he did. He sort of, I could see him being that type. And again, I don't know. I'm sort of conjecturing, but just what I could glean from the history books, you know, for lack of a better word, I could see him sort of having that sort of highfalutin stance, suffering no fools type of, and rubbing people the wrong way, right. quite frankly, which right, he right. did. And apparently, to get we'll get more into this later about how I found this out initially as a young animation student, but he fired, it turned out that Don Bluth, I had to investigate this, Don Bluth fired Brad Bird at Disney. Don Bluth is the man that fired Brad Bird at Disney because he, Brad Bird was disagreeing with I think Don Bluth being such a maverick and going against the grain where and being I think what Brad Bird if I if I'm if I'm get, getting the history correct I think what Brad Bird saw as disrespecting the nine old men and disrespecting the the guys that came before now understand again not to get off on too much of a tangent but guys like Eric Larson and guys like Guys like that were actually actively teaching the younger generation as they were retiring. And Don Bluth supposedly was very callous to those people. And it must have been hard like a guy like Eric Larson, who is, you know, one of the lesser nine old men, but certainly one of the best in that studio and one of Walt's, actually Walt's proper beloved people. For Don Bluth, a guy of Don Bluth's character to come in and just sort of be like, oh yeah, well that guy's yesterday's news type of shit, which I think was kind of going on. Supposedly, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly guys like Bernie Mattinson, veterans like Bernie Mattinson and Eric Larson were actually working on the small one. And Don Bluth and his crew literally, I don't know if Ron Miller put them up to this or what, literally came in on a weekend, took all the storyboards out and redid it. So there was a lot of sort of infighting, a lot of overt infighting going on and i think brad bird saw that as disrespectful presented himself as such and said you're fucking and don blue was like you're fucking out of here then and fired him and that's why brad bird always evokes and i'll get more into this later when i saw him at a lecture i saw him at a lecture for iron giant brad bird had just gotten to pixar he might have been at pixar for a year he was still developing the incredibles and he was it was a lecture about the iron giant and you know, again, a film that was beloved by animation people, but that went largely overlooked due to Warner Brothers' insane lack of marketing. And he had a Brad Bird was up there with a panel. Tony Fucilli, who is actually one of Brad Bird's main animators and a, a staple, a staple at Pixar, and a couple other guys, a couple of his producers and stuff, were key people on Iron Giant were sitting on the panel. And Brad Bird went into this whole diatribe about how he would take. Ali Johnston and Frank Thomas over Don Bluth any day. He literally said that. And I was like, what? Where the hell is this coming from? But now I realize where it was coming from was in Iron Giant, there's caricatures of Frank Thomas and Ali Johnston, who were two of the famous nine old men who wrote The Illusion of Life, which is a book all about Disney's nine old men. Two of Walt's famous nine old men. And what he was talking about was them being, having caricatures in the movie and then he started going off on this whole tangent and this whole diatribe about he would take them 
he would take the nine old men over Don Bluth any day. So that it's very, and that was in the year 2000, that was 2000. When I was living in California, that was at the World Animation Celebration in Hollywood. I was fortunate enough, one of the few people fortunate enough to see that lecture and see Don Bluth, I see Brad Bird rather, still having animosity for Don Bluth. Even after everybody, all everybody's successes, even after all these years, that bad blood was still preserved. It's interesting though, because isn't it fair to say that Disney got the last laugh anyway? I mean, yes. It, if you look at the his, if you look at the history, like Don Bluth had his little explosion of fame in the '80s, right. but then like kind of just let people down over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? Yes. I mean, sort of. I will get into sort of you know how he affiliated himself with dif- different various business partners, and again, his lack of sort of his lack of so- sophistication when it comes to story and certain projects not being to the degree he wanted them to be. So. Not to get off on a big tangent, but so Banjo the Woodpile Cat was that first project. Now, did you want to intervene anything here, Kyle? With no, no, no. I, I want you to keep going. I mean, I because I have a list of just movies that I wanted to touch on, and you know, obviously, Secret of Nim. And we got to talk about. Secret. And then American Tail, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I feel like is the trifecta leading right up. And I know you don't want to talk too deeply about them with Anastasia and even Titan A.E. And we of course have to yeah. talk about the games. Of as course, well, of course. So I want to go in any direction you want to go. I'm fascinated. Okay. I'm totally just li- I'm, I'm sitting back. It's like I'm listening to a lecture. I love it. <laughs> it's not too boring. No, I love okay, I mean, good. I love this shit. Dude. Oh, good. I good, love good. learning about random things. This is what the show is all about. Oh, good. I'm so glad. All right. So I'll keep. So Banjo the Woodpile Cat came out in 1979, 26 or 27 minutes long. Very charming. I definitely again, I go go check it out. Now, it's interesting because you could see a lot of those Don Bluthisms. And you'll know, you guys will know what I'm talking about when you see the film. A lot of really lush effects as far as in terms of rippling water and the really lush movement of like somebody moving through the reeds and the plants and the, and you know, sort of the field, the wheat in the field blowing in the wind and the leaves on the trees, extremely gorgeous attention to detail. But what speaks to me about it, and I love seeing these little imperfections and these little kinks in in the project was some of the scenes feel like a little bit of a higher budget TV animation and some of them feel like full on you would think Disney did this full on feature length animation gorgeously realized and some of it you know from scene to scene you could see a little you could see a little kink in there you could see a little you know maybe somebody on the B team did this scene it was a little right, less right. The, the movement was a little less convincing it was a little less smooth there was a little less fluidity and but that really, I love seeing that. I love seeing the little imperfections and seeing their first project and seeing them sort of, it's like watching the plane get off the ground. It's, it, it's, so, it's so interesting to me. And again, and we'll talk about this more in the next project in The Secret of Nim, which is like 90% of the reason I wanted to talk about Don Bluth, one of my favorite films of all time and certainly one of my favorite animated films of all time. But you could even see this in Banjo where this was the first time that Something can get mistaken, legitimately mistaken for a Disney animation. People, the average layman would not know the difference in terms of the content and in terms of the quality of the content. And that would, must have been very striking in the late 70s to see that and to realize, hey, this isn't Disney. You know, it's sort of like people, it's, it's a sort of similar thing to not knowing what a Pixar project was, especially early on. You know, Pixar didn't do all the early See, you know, you had Pacific Data Images and other people doing other uh, CG animated films, especially in the early to mid 90s. But before Pixar became a household name, this was like people would if people were coming and going and just watched this in passing, they would think it was a Disney film. 
that did not exist before. You could not fake a Disney film. The sheer amount of quality and labor and budget that went into that and tra- and trained extremely highly skilled craftsmen that went into that. You couldn't fake that. This was the first time. And just as a brief synopsis of what Banjo is about, it's a very simple story. Very, very simple. It's about a young kitten named Banjo who's living in rural rural Utah. So maybe some semi-autobiographical for Don Bluth. I don't know. And he lives with his parents and his two siblings. And he's just an extremely curious, rebellious, and mischievous cat. He's always getting into trouble, and his parents are always getting frustrated with him. So he decides – he always kind of gets – he into more trouble than he bargains for. And I think he eventually gets really sad about it and he runs away from home and he ends up in the big city of Salt Lake, right? Cause he's in rural Utah. He's in Payson, Utah. And then he ends up in Salt Lake and he, you know, he sort of runs afoul of different characters in, in Salt, Salt Lake in the big city, quote unquote. And he meets a, a cat named crazy legs. Who's actually voiced by Scatman Crothers. And Eventually, you know, soon Banjo becomes very sad, misses his family, and his new friends help him get home. And that's it. That's the whole thing. Very sweet, very short and simple. You could see this as the training ground for Secret of Nimno. Not not just with the, especially with the cat characters, but with the other anthropomorphic animal characters. You could see them setting up. This was definitely the training ground for Secret of Nim. And so if you guys get a chance, check out Banjo. It's not, you know, again... It wasn't Secret of Nim that was Don Bluth's first film. It was, indeed, Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And it's worth watching, especially because it's short and it's really interesting. And, Kyle, I wanted, you to know, wanted to know if you wanted to interject anything before I start talking about the awesome 1982 film, The Secret of Nim. No, please, continue. So, I had to go in. I always knew, I fell in love with this movie at a very young age. I was nine years old when I first saw it. And our mom took us to go see it. I don't remember if it was either, and mom didn't remember either. We either went to, we didn't see it in the theater. We went to go see it at the free library, or we went to go see it at, I had mentioned in a previous episode, there was like movie nights at the elementary school where they put the movies up on reels and they just kind of showed them on the projector in the cafeteria or whatever. I might, I might have seen, but that's where I first saw it. And I was so struck by this movie when I first saw it. I remember it being a palpable thing of like, what is this movie? You know, and I was at the perfect age for it as well, nine years old, based on the book, the 1971, I believe, novel, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, which I actually went in and finally, I didn't have time to read it, but I went and listened to the audiobook on Audible. Very curious to see the similarities between the book and the film, and they're, they're pretty close. They're not too far off from each other. And... Really a wonderful story, and you know it's labeled. It's interesting because this is the first feature film that I can remember. You know, first feature film I should say geared towards kids that was considered a dark fantasy adventure film. Now that's very striking, and there is a lot of darkness to this, and it's not a musical, and it's really, really beautifully done. You know, you could see that they put so much blood, sweat, and tears into this film, and they had to. Because this was the film. This was the film that was really going to demonstrate whether they were full of shit or whether they could really do a, a Disney animated. Yeah, they had to do, do it right. Disney better than Disney is right. what they used to say. So, to break down the story for you guys a little bit, spoiler alert: if you guys haven't seen The Secret of Nim, go watch. I don't care. I don't even care about the other movies. I I love some of the other content that Don Bluth did. We'll get into All Dogs Go to Heaven. We'll get into An American Tale, Land Before the Time. 
you know, of course, Dragon's Lair, Space Ace, Dragon's Lair 2. None of them are as important as The Secret of Nim. If you guys haven't seen The Secret of Nim, go watch it. It's a must watch. If you have any inkling of nerdom in your blood, you need to see this film right away. Right away. It's, uh, you, and you should be ashamed of yourself that you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> the story centers on a mouse who's a mom named Mrs. Brisby, and she's a widowed, she's actually a widowed field mouse that lives with her children on a farm called the Fitzgibbons Farm. And apparently every year, she's preparing to move her family in anticipation of the annual plowing on the farm. Her farm, her family lives in a home that would be in the way of the farmer plowing, so they have to move their home. So basically, what the book explains a little more is they have a summer house that all the mice leave the they they live in the field all year round because it's such a wonderful place to find food and they have plenty and they stay there but in the in the preparation of the winter and the farmer plowing the field they have to move to another house so they have sort of like a vacation home that they go to but because she's widowed and because unfortunately one of her children is extremely sick she can't move her home she can't move them and she goes to and she's trying to figure out what to do it turns out her son has severe pneumonia and he really can't be moved and he's got to rest for three weeks, which is going to overlap with the plowing of the field. It's kind of about Mrs. Brisby's adventures and her encounters and trying to figure out what she's going to do with her family. And what it leads her to, to make a long story short, is she meets these people, the, I say people, she meets these mice who lead her to these rats who are actually also living on the farm, not too far away, who are extremely intelligent, who happen to be lab rats, escaped lab rats, that she sort of runs into. Basically, she goes to, to make a long story short, she runs into a mouse. She, there's, a, there's a mouse, like a wise old mouse, named, what is his name? Mr. Ages. And she goes to Mr. Ages for advice about what she should do with her son. And he's sort of a doctor. What she should do with her son, what's wrong with him, and how can she possibly move them in time to get out of the way of the plow. Turns out Mr. Ages was a good friend of Mrs. Brisby's husband, Jonathan, who passed away. We don't know why he passed away or what happened to him, but he's an old friend of Jonathan's. And he's extremely, Mr. Ages is extremely intelligent. He's at, Mr. Ages is affiliated with a bunch of rats on the farm who turn out to be escaped lab rats. And they have this sort of civilization on the farm that they the rats live in this rose bush and they're sort of the head of everything. They're sort of the head of all the animals on the farm, extremely intelligent. Turns out they're escaped lab rats and they're siphoning off, the. they figured out how to siphon off the farmer's electricity and sort of build this community inside this rose bush using electricity. You know, so much more intelligent than any other animal on the farm. And they have this whole community and Mr. Ages... When he finds out Mrs. Brisby's problem, directs her and says, well, the rats might be able to help you. And in turn, they go to, you know, another another wise old figure it's called the, you know, the great owl. And when he he's reluctant, the great owl is actually reluctant to help Mrs. Brisby until he finds out that she's Jonathan's husband. And then he's like, oh, I could help you. And she's like, what the hell is going on? Like, who who was my husband? That every like I'm getting I'm commanding this respect from this owl who just would would rather just eat me basically. Brilliance. The scene with the great owl is one of my favorite animated scenes of all time. It's so beautifully done. 
with a voice. Who voices the great owl? I have to look at that. It's in my notes somewhere. Oh my God. The voice and the appearance of the great owl. He doesn't have pupils. He just has orange glowing eyes and he's super frightening. And he's, it's the first time I've, it's actually the first time, very striking for me as a kid. The first time I ever saw gore in an animated movie, he's this old owl and he's massive and he's sleeping. It's nighttime and he's covered in cobwebs and he's moving and the cobwebs are kind of falling off him. And this giant spider is actually, she doesn't see it, is actually stalking Mrs. Brisby. She's kind of standing there with her hands clenched and she's waiting for this owl to turn around and address her and she's scared. This giant spider is walking behind her. And he just, without even knowing that you see, he sees it, he just steps on it with his giant talon and the spider just crunch and all his green guts come oozing out the side. And I remember being a kid like, this looked like a Disney movie until just now, and then Disney would never... You know, it had those sort of dark intonations about, right. okay, this was something different. And that was one of those pronounced moments where it was like, okay, this isn't a Disney movie. And then, you know, a moth flies up and he eats it, and the wing breaks off and falls down. It's kind of like, it's frightening. You know, and, it's, and you know he moves and all the mouse bones fall down and everything. And it's sort of setting up this really cool character... And he's voiced by, I want to tell you who he's voiced by because he's so great. Oh, he was voiced by John Carradine. So he has this deep, gravelly voice. Wonderful. One of my favorite scenes. So he, the great owl sort of was like, I'm not helping you. You're just a little mouse. And she's like, wait, you're Jonathan Frisbee, Jonathan Frisbees or Jonathan Brisbees. We'll get into why they changed the name too. Thank you, Frisbee Corporation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're Jonathan Brisbee's wife. Yeah, I can help you. Go see the rats. They're going to help you. And she leaves grateful, but she's like, who the hell was my husband? Why are all these people helping me? You know, grateful, but she's like, what is going on? Well, it turns out that Jonathan and Mr. Ages were the only two mice also involved in the laboratory testing. So basically the National Institute of Mental Health, that's what NIM stands for, took these mice off the farm, captured these, these, these two mice, and the rest were rats, and did exp- conducted extreme experiments on them, which actually gave them extreme intelligence. Ex- you know, gave them enough intelligence to be able to read, to be able to escape from the lab, and then siphon the electricity off the farm. It also prolonged their lifespan apparently, and gave them other sometimes other powers and other ailments. And Jonathan, her husband Jonathan, was part of that. Apparent when you find out what happened, the rats. Actually, when they were sort of starting to form their community, Mr. Ages and Jonathan were involved in the plot. And Jonathan was the one who was to poison the farm cat so that they wouldn't have to deal with him. And he was killed in the plant. He was ki- Jonathan was killed trying to help the rats. He was killed trying to poison the cat. And that's why the rats revere Jonathan so much because he was one of the ones that helped them Without him, they would have never been able to build the community and siphon the electricity off the farm and all that stuff. So it turns out that she get Mrs. Brisby gets affiliated with these rats and they end up helping her. But there's a lot of drama that ensues because the rats, as it turns out, are divided into two factions. There's the faction that realizes that with this intelligence, there's sort of the good quote-unquote faction that realizes that it's wrong that we're stealing this power from the farmer we shouldn't be doing this so they sort of develop a consciences you know they sort of develop a conscience and there's that faction that's like we need to 
they have a it's called the Thorn Valley plan where they plan to leave the farm and go do it for themselves. And then there's the other faction like what we earn this intelligence. We're staying here. It doesn't matter that we're stealing from the freaking farmer. He doesn't know anything. And that's sort of the bad guy. Um, you know, it's sort of headed up by the bad guy of the rats. And so she's kind of cro- caught up in the crossfire of this drama between the rats and sort of this wise old rat who knew her husband named Nicodemus and his captain of the guard named Justin, who sort of takes a shining their rats that they, they sort of take a shining to Mrs. Brisby. And then there's the bad side is a rat named Jenner, who is sort of the leader of the rats who want to stay on the farm and continue to steal the power from the farmer. And then there's other characters that sort of come in and out of the story. Again, we'll get into Dom DeLuise and how he was involved in almost every Dom Bluth movie, but he plays a bird, a crow named Jeremy who helps who initially helps Mrs. Brisbane and becomes one of her allies. So it's this great story about, you know, and again, it's it's this dark, it's not a musical, it's very dark. There's fighting. They they show, you know, when they go into the story about how the the rats were captured from the farm and transported to Nim and experimented on, they show human like humans picking them up and th- and thrusting the lat, you know, the needles, the hypodermic needles into the rats. It has a very it was it was so much more it was so much darker that word is such a cliche but it really was it was so much darker and so much more adult in theme and so much more serious than any other animated thing that we had seen of my generation up to that point that it was very striking for me and it was really so beautifully done it presented i know it really kind of encircles a lot of what Don Bluth's philosophy is which is it's okay to show the dark stuff it's okay to show a little bit of violence it's okay for the characters to be in this dark spot because that's only going to play up the victory later on. You've got to have the dark in order to contrast with the light. The dark before the dawn. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and that's really, and this movie is so beautifully realized and so beautifully animated. It's just gorgeous. And it really holds up. It really holds up so well. And you could see everything that Don Bluth said he wanted to do, whether it was fire, you know, traditionally animating fire. Traditionally animating effects is very difficult. Traditionally animating fire, water, wind. There's a part where Jeremy the crow is sort of a klutz and he's caught, you know, he's caught in all this yarn when he first meets Mrs. Brisby and he can't get out. He's all entangled and the the farm cat dragon is coming. And Mrs. Brisby's trying to help him escape and he's all entangled in this yarn and the string. It's gorgeous. It's it's unbelievable as an animator to see the technical proficiency in it and just how gorgeous it is. And the extreme, like almost unnecessary level of detail. And, you know, everything that Don Blue said he wanted to do, colored gels under glass and all these old effects before, you know, and again, this was, this was traditional cell animation. This was before they were even digitally coloring traditional animation, before the CAPS system and all the, you know, the digital ink and paint. This was before all of that. This is all traditionally drawn, painted cell, lush colors, super vibrant, they used way more colors than were necessary. And the film really stands out because of that. Not only because of the content, because of this extreme level of craftsmanship. And that's why people love it. And that's why people still evoke it to this day. And that's why I think it's really on the tip of people's tongues when they talk about Don Bluth, in effect. This is the first thing they'll talk about. because, And I think and I think Don Bluth is even acknowledged this is really his best film. And it's Don Bluth doing his best thing. I, and I think a reason why it works so well, and before we get into the story problems and his later, 
his later production was because he was just adopting a novel. It's perfect for Don Bluth, you know, and realizing it in his brilliant way and his vision, he's able to vi- visually depict an existing story that was already powerful. So he was taking what he was good at, which was designing and, anim- and animating and making it beautiful, you know, and I think later on, that's where he went wrong. You know, right, with- right. Because I mean, the, the trifecta of movies of, well, actually, before I even get into that, I want to ask, was this movie well received critically and commercially? I mean, were people really impressed by this opening salvo? He must have been a desired, you know, worker at that point or a desired production company in which to to make the next film. Because I noticed that there's a four year gap between Nim and American Which Tale. is a pretty big gap. Yeah. That's a pretty big gap because usually they'll overlap. But I think a lot of that, that overlap and that four year gap was due to, you know, they didn't have you know, they might've been working on still developing a, a full stable of people, a full complement of people. Maybe they needed 200, but they only had 60 or something. So that overlap that I could see that initial, you know, that initial takeoff, that initial flight, you know, there's some sputtering because you're not really, you don't have the financial resources or in fact, the, you know, just the people resources, the actual talent resources to do that yet, to overlap production. So I think there was that. Now, it was Siskel and Ebert. I love, especially this era, the 70s and all the way through the 80s. I love seeing the Siskel and Ebert stuff because, first of all, Siskel and Ebert, (laughs) I don't really, I know they were really integral and people really paid attention to them and they were such a big part of film sort of commentary and film uh, criticism kind of ahead of their time. I mean, it's almost, I, I, first of all, I, I, I do think a lot of their opinions are ridiculous. I also love how they hated each other. If you, if you watch like a lot of the beat or the cuts of them, like there's like compilation cuts of them where they're like in between scenes and stuff and they just fucking make fun of each other. And like, maybe you'll get the line right this time and stuff, you know, it's stuff amazing. Like yeah, it's awesome. But- and it was amazing to me too. Like, in just watching them review this movie and a few other Don Bluth's earlier films, like they would just get details completely wrong. Like saying Dom DeLuise did the voice for the completely wrong character and kept it like that. You know, it was like, it was you like couldn't early, take a note. It was like early YouTube, though. You know, it's like it was like it's like proto YouTube, like these two guys sitting around being true. a little snarky. It's true. Telling you if you should buy. I'm not saying criticism started with with them, but on camera criticism started with them. It's so. Really, that, so very it, interesting stuff. It there. really did, though. You're absolutely right. Now, they praised the film. They went on to say they praised this. They actually praised the film for its story, which is not a surprise. It was based on the novel, which I don't know how well the novel did, but the novel's quite good. It's lush artwork, especially praising the highly detailed backgrounds and the gorgeous, painstaking, as they called it, animation. You know, now knowing their criticism of animation, they're not animation experts. We'll get into that more later when they just completely talk out of turn about animation and really don't know what they're talking about when it comes to animation, but. It was cool. It was a cool shot in the arm for Don Bluth and his people that they liked the film. Now, I'm not sure. I don't think it did too well at the theaters, in the theaters, I should say. I'm going to look for that because I know I have it wrote, written down. I don't want to talk out of turn, but I thought it made $6 million or something. Which is nothing. Which it didn't, you know, and I think that it also didn't, you know, I should also say, I should preface it by saying Banjo, the Woodpile Cat, they were making that. It was tacked on apparently to the beginning of the Muppet movie, but it only played in the front of the Muppet movie for like the better part of a week in the theaters. And it was like, that was in limited theaters. So that's as much, that's sort of as as much exposure as Bluth and his people got to this point. And revenue. And revenue as well. 
So the fact that whatever whatever Nim got was a lot, you know, already a lot more than their previous project, but it didn't it was enough for people to take notice in terms of quality. And I think that was really the important part of that. You know, that was the really the important part of this film is that they were proving it, not only proving it for themselves, but also kind of putting the shake into Disney a little bit where it was like, okay, they kind of proved themselves as far as being able to turn out a production of Disney like quality. And I would argue better than anything Disney had done in the previous, at least the previous five years, you know, and I would say better than anything Disney did up to the little mermaid, maybe even. So really striking, very important in terms of the, the, the later success and building success for Don Bluth and his, and his studio and his young fledgling studio. So how did this lead us then to An American Tale four years later, which is a movie that I love. Me Not too. my favorite Don Bluth movie. My favorite Don Bluth movie is certainly A Land Before Time. But talk to me a little bit about how he kind of ended up there. And is this kind of the beginning of people kind of criticizing him? Because I, I guess I would say that with All Dogs Go to Heaven, that's a little bit of a weaker movie with a weaker story. Yeah. But I don't consider it An American Tale or The Land Before Time that have weak stories. In fact, The Land Before Time is probably the single saddest movie I've ever seen and a movie that I literally refuse to watch. Land Before Time, it's That movie traumatized me to such an extent as a child. Oh, we got to get into that. That We got to talk about it. I remember clearly, like it's one of those early memories. I mean, clearly remember watching it for the first time being like, why am I watching? Like I was, came out in what, 88? So I was probably four or five when I had it on tape. First of all, I had all these movies on tape, which is weird. You did, you definitely did. And the Secret of Nim 2, I'm not sure. I don't know that I had Secret of Nim. I've seen it, but I don't know that I've, I had that, but I had an American tale because yep. I watched the shit out of that movie. I and remember. you and I had a connection with that movie. And definitely. And I had a connection with mom with that movie, too. And the land before time. It, it reminds me of Bambi, actually, in the sense that why would you want a, a child to see this? Oh, absolutely. About losing the, a, a, an anime, a children's animated movie about losing your mother. You know, oh, that's fun. You know, and exciting. That's something that every that's <laughs> certainly not doesn't just fill every child with existential dread. When they have to see that kind of stuff. Can so you imagine. But an American tale, I, I mean, I feel like an American American tale and Land Before Time have strong stories, personally. You know, or at least stories that, if not strong, if not labyrinthine in their exposition and stuff, certainly tugged at my heartstrings. That this an American tale is an awesome is an awesome story, I think. And I think so too. And the Land Before Time, yeah, they really ran that shit into the ground. And I don't know if that was Don Bluth or someone else that did all of the sequels. I don't even think I've ever seen any of the sequels. We'll talk about that. But yeah, so, so let's start with an American Tale, 1986. All right. Now I want to tell you, Kyle. I found oh, all my info written about just to just to wrap up the secret of Nim. Now, in their critical response, this was very striking to me actually. In their critical response, Siskel and Ebert to the film, Roger Ebert actually said Walt Disney would have liked the secret of Nim. That probably meant a lot to Don Bluth to actually say that quote. And I actually looked at the YouTube show. He actually did say it. So it's, it's not paraphrasing. He actually said that, which is, which is really striking. Now it did do very poorly at the box office. And I remember researching this now. It never appeared in more than 700 theaters all told that's across North America. And then, no, that's actually international. I'm sorry. It had an opening weekend of about $300,000 in only, and it was only in about 100 theaters at first. Now, were people loath to 
carry this movie to anger Disney? Did that have anything to do with it? I wonder about that. My first instinct would be to say no, because this was before Disney was really a ma- not a major player. This was before up. Disney had the revolu- the, re- the renaissance. This is this that's was a, very striking to say this this and American Tale was before the Disney Renaissance. That's number one. Number two is this is before Disney's distribution arm was the all powerful Disney distribution arm that it is today. So I don't think angering Disney during this time was I would imagine it wasn't too much of a concern because Disney really didn't have that much they really didn't have that much at this point. Right, yeah. they weren't as a relevant factor they, to them. In fact, they're in fact they were they were struggling. But certainly, this movie came out at the advent of the VCR, and that yeah. must have helped Absolutely. proliferate it. It opened, and you know, it opened in the box office. I didn't realize this. It opened opened against ET. Mm. So that's not good. Now I don't know if it opened against ET that same weekend or if it was around the same time. Also, I was reading Poltergeist, Rocky Three, Firefox, and Star Trek Two. So there was a oh, lot yeah, of things lot. going on yeah. in the theater, right? Star Trek Two is Wrath of Khan, right? That, yeah, that was one of the biggest Star Trek movies, as far as I know. So, not any better than the other Star Trek movies, but certainly oh, one of the God. best. Maybe my favorite, though. I don't even know what that means. But anyway, <laughs> what does it mean to have a Doesn't favorite Star much. Trek movie? I'm going to tell you right now on Knockback, never covering Star Trek. You that's, think that's never? Gonna be an, that's, you I'm would gonna, go as far as I'm going to X never? that out. Yeah, we're not going to. I can't. I'm sorry. We get, You got two guys here that are not Star Trek fans. It's not even about. I, I just can't even feign. I've never even seen the new ones. No, me neither. Because why? I saw them. <laughs> anyway, go on. <laughs> and ultimately, at the end of the day, apparently, The Secret of Name grossed a little less than 15 million in North America, all told. And that's with everything. So that should say a lot. That should definitely say a lot. And I love seeing the critical reaction. Now, we're crossing over. We have to come back. We have to promise to come back to the video games because we're crossing over to that. Yeah, yeah, we'll get back to the Because yeah, there, there is to, time. Yeah, yes. In order to get to American Tale. But American Tale is very important to talk about. 1986. And like you said, Kyle, very important to note at the top of my notes in all caps. Very important to note that this film came before the Disney Renaissance. Okay, so this that should be extra striking in terms of quality. Now, I'll start off by saying that Gene Siskel didn't like the film because he felt it was racist. Okay, let's keep these in the back of our head. All right. And the animation was just passable. Animation expert Gene Siskel, people. You know what I mean? It was just passable. It, It says saying it wasn't full animation. And I have in parentheses there, Gene Siskel, animation scholar, also criticized Dom DeLuise for being too pronounced of a voice. I like Dom DeLuise. Ebert didn't much like the film either, thought it was very downbeat and depressing, which I agree with, and serious, in quotes. Again, they shout out Dom Bluth and his story, and Ebert praises the animation and the visuals. Now, very important to note that Steven Spielberg... Of course, like he should have noticed what notorious, first of all, notorious old school Disney lover and notorious Disney rival from a young age, from young in his career, Steven Spielberg definitely noticed what Don Bluth was doing before Secret of Nim was even a thing. But I'm sure Secret of Nim raised both of his eyebrows very high. So I'm sure he was watching and I'm sure as soon as he saw Secret of Nim, he was plotting to be involved with Don Bluth in some capacity. Also, just in a blanket way, Steven Spielberg, very big fan of animation in general and a champion of animation, which he would later demonstrate with Spiel- with DreamWorks. But 
Also, very important to note, American Tale in the box office, highest grossing non-Disney film ever, up to that point, all the way to The Little Mermaid, which came a few years later. The this, this story is about five, a young mouse named Fivel Mouskowitz who emigrates from Imperial Russian territory, the Ukraine, to the United States for freedom and a whole new way of life. The family are immigrants. He and his family are immigrants. The family arrives in New York, though, without Fivel, who it turns out, I had to rewatch this movie in order to remember all the details, and it's a very... It's a very powerful movie, and it's very beautifully done. But I, I personally have some problems, and I can't wait to talk about it with you, Kyle, because we have a, we definitely have a, a cute connection about, not a cute, but an acute connection yeah, about a, this. Yeah, acute, yeah. Yeah, not yeah. obtuse. No, yeah, the opposite yeah, of exactly. Right. Yeah. We also have an obtuse connection. Yeah, yeah sure. Who, so Philo gets washed overboard during their voyage to this new, to this new land when you know, the, the ship gets caught, the boat gets caught up in a violent thunderstorm. And the family, though very sad, assumes that Fievel is dead when they arrive. But it turns out that Fievel manages to, again, spoiler alert, he manages to wash up in, in the harbor inside of a bottle. And he, the whole movie, the whole trajectory of the movie basically is that Fievel has to find a way to reunite with his family and the many friends and the few villains that he meets along the the people he runs afoul of along the way on his adventures in this new place as he's getting acclimated to this new place and searching for his family and it's i think it's a it's a really striking movie about optimism and you know there's such a there and it's a little bit of a movie about hope and even false hope which is very interesting and we'll get to talking about why everybody is so excited for the new world because it's very important to note that they think these mice and these mice immigrants think that there are no cats here. And they sing a song about there, are, of course, the famous song, There Are No Cats in America. And you have to join Fievel as he searches for, for, this, for his family in this strange and hopeful but interesting and dangerous new place. And... Now, I wanted to ask you, Kyle, because I know you know this movie without even having to research much. I know you grew up on this movie. You kind of cut your teeth on this movie. So what, how did, what, what were your thoughts about this movie, as, you know, then and now, but especially then? I found the I mean, I don't know that I could describe it as a young kid like this, but it's just, I think it's somber and very much sad. So. And actually, in, in it was only in hindsight that I realized that there's some weird connection between Don Bluth and Imperial Russia. Um, because Anastasia, which is arguably one of his more famous movies, or maybe his most famous movie, yeah, is also about that. So there's some weird connection he has to that, which is interesting. And it's not like I don't know that he's Ru- Russian. I, I mean, Don Bluth. I don't. That doesn't sound like a Russian. Yeah, name. I know. He has no connection to Orthodox Christianity or anything like that, or Communist Party, or you know, like anything that would be you know White Russia, anything that would kind of indicate that. So that's like one weird wrinkle that I've noticed as an adult, but. The other thing is, is that I knew as a kid that this wasn't a Disney movie. You know, Disney didn't deal with this kind of stuff, really. And it's a, I, I liked it. I mean, it's surprising to be have it described as racist because I think it's the exact opposite of that. Yeah. It's a movie about an immigrant trying to find a better life. I don't understand Absolutely. how what's what what is even remotely racist. Now, do about you that. remember that? You know, obviously, it's it's kind of known and it's sort of expressed that these are Jewish Mice, but right. apparently it's never actually said. No, the name says that, though. And the Mouskowitz indicates that they're Jewish. I mean, but 
And they live with the Moskowitz family, like the, the human family that they live with are the Moskowitzes, right? And then they, they're the Moskowitzes. So it's like very, it's obvious, they're obviously Jewish. If you look at the story, why, why is that racist? I don't understand. Yeah, like, I don't what? even understand what the relevance is of that either, because the communists were atheists, but there was no, anti-Semitism was more of a Central European phenomenon. I'm not saying that it wasn't going on elsewhere, and it certainly was going on in the Russian Empire, but... I don't know. I, I was always that was that was over my head as a kid anyway. But I remember, you know, the songs and the, the I don't know. I, I felt like it had a darker color palette and it was adventurous, you know, and it was old. And I, I, I as a very young kid, I always had a fascination with like the past. Yeah. You know, and I'm not talking about like land before time paleontology past. I'm talking about just the past of, you know, humanity. And so. I always really adored that movie. I had a really, I really loved that movie. I mean, I think it's a really special film. It is. It is. There's a warmth to it. It is very melancholy. There's a great melancholy in that movie. And that, you know, the famous song somewhere out there does not help. I think that's one of the saddest songs. There's something really wonderful going on in that movie too, where, and very pronounced thing where if you really think about it, Fievel's parents are sort of downtrodden and they're very sad about, the you know what they think is the apparent death of their son and they they kind of lost all hope and they're kind of for lack of a better word not to sound funny about it, there's really sad sacks about the whole thing they're depressed they're sad they gave up hope but Fievel's little sister Tanya is the one who sort of keeps hope alive and sort of kindles that hope by expressing that look like I have a feeling that Fievel's still alive and that's a very striking thing to me in the movie. It was a very pronounced thing where it was like the parents were obviously wrongheaded and the sister, the little sister was actually the one that was had the right frame of mind. And that her feeling about Fievel still being alive was what gave everybody hope, ultimately. And I that was something that was always very pronounced in the movie for me. And also very a very fun villain in this movie, Warren, Warren T. Rat, who's in fact a cat that wears a prosthetic rat nose over his face, like which is clearly rubber banded onto awesome. his face, like a birthday hat that you wear over your nose. And you know, it's such a great character and a great character design. Again, hearkening back to the wonderful character designs in The Secret of Nim, where you have the great owl and the mice and Jeremy the crow and the rat, the awesome character designs for the rats, which are so inspirational to us. As character designers in college, we would constantly watch The Secret of Nim. And the first time we saw characters, that whole Ninja Turtle-esque thing, before the Ninja Turtles where the characters didn't have pupils, you know, their eyes were just white or they just shined. Like, that whole thing, it just felt older. It felt more sophisticated. It felt like more like a comic book, like a Batman graphic novel or something. There was a little bit of that element to it that we that we liked. And the character design in this movie is pretty cool too and that you know the characters are drinking alcohol and they're smoking cigars and it's just such a it's just such a and the scale of the characters you have the tight the, the cat the cat character tiger who's massive compared to the mice characters so you have that awesome sense of dynamic scale with the characters it's a lot of fun but you're right it does have that very sort of it has a very muted color palette and that really evokes the time period that this movie is trying to represent and I remember that this movie really does feel like that era of New York, you know, that it really feels like that. It's the first it's a it's a real timepiece movie. And 
I always loved that about it, as somber and melancholy as it is. And in a way, it's also it also has that fun element and that levity, which is like which I I think makes it work. And I think that's what really you know lent to this the success of this film and people embracing it. And also, what should be said when upon researching it, I never knew this. There was a very purposeful design motif in this movie to kind of harken back to the beautiful Disney feature film content of the 40s, the 30s, and especially the 40s, echoing the Disney animation design from that period that was very soft, round, and cuddly because they wanted to stay away from colder, sharper, more angular design because the story and what's happening in the story is already pretty harsh and already there's a lot of coldness there and they're poor and they're coming to this new world and it's cold and there's a lot of villains and all that kind of stuff. So, and I think there was sort of a marketing mantra behind that as well that may may or may not have had to do with Spielberg's ex- expertise and that kind of stuff. Again, coming off of things like E.T. So there was that whole thing. And also, you know, it should be said that he did this, Don Bluth and Steven Spielberg, this is the first time they were sort of in bed together on a project that Steven Spielberg, you know, helped produce. And apparently now, apparently over time between this and their, their other projects that they worked on together, Spielberg and Don Bluth, Don Bluth didn't like being lorded over by anybody. And Spielberg, obviously, even then a very powerful man in Hollywood, you know, sort of taking Bluth under his wing. I don't think Bluth really had that much autonomy and I don't think he liked that. And I think this is where... Not only the two came together, but I think this is where they also started veering apart, and we'll get into it more with the next film that we talk about. But is there anything? There was a, one thing that I wanted to say about a cobbler. I wasn't sure if you were going to remember this because you were so young. This was a film that I remember really watching with you a lot. Again, you said, as you noted, we had it on VHS and we used to watch it together. But there's a song in it, and it's not the famous Somewhere Out There song. There's a song called... Um, were a duo and Tiger the Cat, which is Dom DeLuise's character, and Fievel sing it together. Now, Tiger the Cat is part of Warranty Rat's sort of army, and he's sort of one of his henchmen, but he's a very reluctant and kind hearted henchman. And he meets Fievel and he's like, ah, oh, screw this, I'm going to help you, kid. And like, they sing this song together called We're a Duo. And I, I used to sing this with you all the time. Do you remember that? I don't. On I, I, I don't. It, it was so, it was so cute. I remember, I just have this vision of like, you know, I guess four-year-old Colin singing this song like, "We're a duo, it's true." And like, it was like, really, it's really an adorable song, and it's really <laughs> an, a tiger is really an adorable character, and of course, Five is so cute. And I, I remember watching that with you and singing that with you, and it's so, and which I had forgotten about until I saw the song, and I was like, "Oh my God, yes, of course," you know, and of course, there are no cats in America, which right, right, which is a great song as well. Song. So, so, so much fun. I really like this movie a lot. I, I still, I think it holds up really well. And the fact that it was the highest grossing non-Disney film ever until the late 80s says, really, animated film says a lot. Yeah, it's you awesome. Know? I mean, it's, it is volumes. a great film. It's been so long since I've watched it. I really should, probably, as, I don't know that I've even seen it. As it's a good movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. I got to go check good. it out. And that leads us to 1988's Depressing the Land Before Time. <laughs> about dinosaurs which is so fucking sad like it's just another sad movie it just i appreciate it it's like these are cartoon dramas they're not really supposed to be like uplifting or anything like that i don't think or they're uplifting ultimately but they're also downtrodden and 
and whatnot. But I, I really like The Land Before Time. Now, you don't care much for this film? No, I love this movie. Okay. I love this movie. I think it's a, I think it's a really good movie. I think it's a very important movie. It's beautifully done. Again, an animated adventure drama. Very notable in the fact that it's not a musical. Okay, now, of course, The Secret of Nim, which I think I, I neglected to mention accidentally, not a musical. Then kind of Don Bluth stepping back into the Disney arena, as far as I'm concerned, as far as producing something that's a musical in American Tale. American Tale, very pronounced musical. And part of the success, I think part of the success that it garnered was because of the music. And again, people were already, even before the Disney renaissance that started again with The Little Mermaid, I think people were already very much in tune with the fact of the formula of the Disney musical. They expected to see that in an animated feature. And The Land Before Time was, you know, decidedly not a musical. And I think that really, I think that's a really important thing to mention. Now, this was executive produced and directed by Don Bluth. And of course, his stable of people, John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman, everybody was with him. Executive produced by Spielberg, George Lucas, Frank Marshall, and everybody's favorite, Kathleen Kennedy. (laughs) And released by Universal Pictures. And basically, make a long story short, set in prehistoric times, a young long neck, or a young brontosaurus. Are they allowed to be called brontosauruses right now? I don't know. They changed it all the time. A young long neck. Did they change the name of the brontosaurus? Yeah. And then they changed it back. Really? As far as I know, yeah. Oh, weird. All right. Because whatever Brontosaurus meant was not. It turned out not to be true. I don't know. There's some dinosaurs. Oh, interesting. Because it's Brontosaurus. I, I know and exactly. then it turned out to be true again. I don't know. It's it has a whole. It has that whole patina of Pluto to me. It's like just keep it a planet. Right. You know, whatever. Just just for simplicity's sake. You know, that's how we grew up. It's nostalgic. This is a show about nostalgia. I want Pluto to be a planet. I want long necks to be Brontosauruses. A young long neck named Littlefoot is orphaned when his mom is killed mercilessly in front of him. Uh, <laughs> little, I, th- I think Littlefoot, you know, so he has to flee famine and upheaval to search for the storied Great Valley, which is this area, this mythical area said to be spared from all the earthly devastation that's happening around him. And upon his journey meets four young companions, Sarah, Ducky, Petrie and Spike, who's a three horn, a big mouth, a flyer, and a spike tail. Very cute that they sort of leverage the dinosaur names for these made up names. You know, a triceratops is a three horn and so on and so forth. I think that's very cute. And the film really does explore a few different themes, including, you know, I think it's too far to say racism, but prejudice. The prejudice between the different dinosaur species. And I love, you know, that any kind of theme about prejudice and racism stuff is very near and dear to my heart because that is the one thing and probably on the planet that breaks my heart. So anything sort of centered around that message always really speaks to me anyway. But what I did not know, Kyle, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit that, but I'm going to admit that to you guys. I had no idea this movie spawned 13 sequels. Yeah, I knew and it spawned. And a TV I series. I didn't know it spawned that many, but I knew that there was a 13 lot of 13 direct-to-video sequels? Are you kidding me? I almost want to get them just to have 13. They actually did 13 Land Before Times. But not even talking about the TV series. I don't think I knew there was a TV series. Now, I made, a, I made up a rule, Colin. I hope you're okay with it. Okay. I made up another rule for knockback. Now, Colin and I have a one rule for knockback, which Colin came up with, which I think is actually a brilliant rule. And that is that we sort of sort of took an oath not to talk about, if we could at all help it, not to really do a topic on something and talk about something at length that is not completed yet. For instance, 
the topic that one of the topics that I'm really interested to talk about the most attack on Titan. We can't really talk about it yet. And we can't, it's true that we can't really talk about it yet with some authority because it's not over yet. How can we really talk about it yet? It's still going. Right. So something like a Breaking Bad, it's over. It spawned spinoffs, but Breaking Bad, for instance, we could do. But a thing like Attack on Titan, we can't do yet. A Game of Thrones, whatever it is, we can't do those things yet. They're not over yet. So I have another rule, Kyle, that I'm proposing to you here Please. in front of the fans, and you tell me if it's okay with you. I propose that we never talk about or give much credence to or much more than a couple of sentences to any poorly animated direct-to-video sequels of movies. Now, animated sequels to movies, fine. You want to talk about Toy Story 2? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. Of course. What about direct... Because, I mean, Don Bluth has all sorts of direct-to-video one-offs in the 90s. Yes. But those aren't sequels. So No, those aren't sequels. Okay. So that wouldn't count. Any, any kind of... No, because then you would have to... Then you would get into... You know, you could get into OAV and all that kind of anime stuff. Sure, and that's, sure. That's just... Okay. Of course, that's acceptable. That's, you know... This no, I, I'm totally fine with that. So, so I don't... We don't have to talk about those. I don't want to talk too much about the 13 directive, which are supposed to be terrible. Well, w w was he responsible for any of them? I think... No, because I think what had happened... I think really what it was, was that what felt fell under Spielberg and probably not even Amble Nation, but probably Universal. And that was probably under Universal's. I'm assuming that's a great question, but I'm assuming 13. that was under. If you asked 13. me, if you asked me, I would have said like four. 13, 30 years. This came out in 88. Now we're talking 30 years, right? That's that's interesting. I mean, there must be a market for Land Before Time sequels, you would assume. I mean, it's I would imagine. All right. First of all, it's dinosaurs and it's kids. Kids love dinosaurs. Obviously, I love dinosaurs when I was a kid. I don't think I don't know if dinosaurs has quite the same mystique and they never really mattered to me that really much. I love they're dinosaurs. interesting my son's the same way he doesn't care about dinosaurs they're super i mean they're it's certainly interesting that these animals roamed around yeah and paleontology is very interesting but i loved it but i i never really cared much about you know learning more about right know, the, the tyrannosaurus yeah, Rex sometimes some people's it was just off their radar for me it always it always sort of combined wildlife and nature which was always so fascinating with monsters Basically, because that's what they were. <laughs> These things were monsters, basically. So it was like kind of, you know, kind of like a trip to the zoo and Godzilla mixed in one. Like, okay, yes, please. Like for me, it was like, yeah, of course. And I love Godzilla as well. But for me, that's probably where it gets a lot of its, you know, a lot of its glosses from just being about dinosaurs. Now, the genesis, I should say, Kyle, the genesis of this film was Spielberg's idea to do sort of as a, you know, pitching this as a, as an elevator pitch, as a single sentence. He wanted to do an animated film that, like Bambi, only with dinosaurs. That was literally the elevator pitch. Not that Spielberg had to pitch to anybody, but that was the genesis. That was the seed of the idea for The Land Before Time. And ultimately, this film was sort of the beginning of the main breaking point for Bluth and Spielberg because they did not see eye to eye on how frightening the movie should be for children. With Bluth wanting to be a little more, with wanting to present things as a little more horrific and realistic and seeing the dinosaur suffering and seeing the mother get killed and, and Spielberg literally worrying that kids were going to be crying out in the theater lobby with their mom. And I think, I think Spielberg definitely won that arm wrestling match. He was much more powerful at the time. And I think Bluth was upset not to have his way and not to see, not to sort of have his 
total creative vision realized on screen and not to have that autonomy, which I understand as a creator, you want to have that, but you're not going to have that when you, you know, he, what he got in return was Spielberg's name being attached to his project. Of course. So yeah, a little quid, which pro helps. Pro. I mean, it doesn't, squid pro row. <laughs> and again, like you said, very melancholy movie following up on, you know, I would say even more so than America, certainly than an American tale. I agree. And also notable for being the only Don Bluth film of the 80s that Dom DeLuise was not in. Hmm. Apparently did a voice in Oliver and Company, I think, at the time. He was busy doing that. So I wonder how Donnie felt about Dommy. Yeah, maybe that uh, has something that. to do with it. Patrick Molloy wrote it on Patreon. Patrick. Said, according to my parents, the original The Land Before Time was the first film that I ever sat and watched in its entirety. Even as a young child, I think I could appreciate how the prejudice, bickering, and fear between the dinosaurs eventually grew into camaraderie and love over the course of the journey. To this day, a group of misfit characters setting off on a grand adventure is still my favorite framing device for a story. And I love that because it feels like, and it's very well said, Patrick. Thank you for that. And it's very well said because it's like a normal group of kids. It's very relatable. It's not... It's not all sweet and roses. It's four different personalities. There's some obstinance. There's arguing. You know, Sarah's an extremely obstinate kid, and she's combat. In fact, combative, and it feels realistic. You know, kids like that. When four friends get together, not my four friends because we were awesome. Shouts out to Matt, Tommy, and John. Growing up, but most friends, you know, that when they get together like that. That's how it is, and that really rings true, and I think that's one of those key things in a story that is super important. That's what makes it special, yeah, and that's dynamic. what makes it memorable you know, for us. Yeah, because I think that you have to put more depth into making an animated character pop as believable. That's then, well. That's a great point too. Yeah. Then you know, just you know, well, typically, then your human character. I think you have more tools at your disposal to make them pop, but I think that takes effort. You know, but beyond the performance. Right. And of course, you know, a thing, a blanket thing too that we never get to talk about, Kyle, in animation is that Brad Bird talks about this sometimes. That in animation, it's very important to realize that the amount of skill and labor that goes into it. And I don't say that as as a champion of animation because I'm an animator. I'm just saying it's much easier to shoot a live action scene and not use it than shooting and draw storyboarding and vetting and drawing and painting, especially at this time, and filming under camera and editing an animated sequence, which takes hours, countless hours and hours of labor. And you can't shoot things from multiple angles. And then choose later in the editing room. Everything is very preconceived and preordained and necessary. And anything that you're taking out of the film, you know, ultimately is really hurting your bottom line and your budget. And in fact, your schedule. So that's a very important thing to note in animation. When you have a successful animation for any animated project, even the lowest budget pieces of crap you know, take a lot of time and effort. And I think that's something very notable to talk about when you're talking about animation versus live action is that there's no, there's no room for mistakes. There really isn't. You know, once you get that storyboard approved and you go to final scene and you're starting to animate something, that's it. Like, it's got to be in the movie. To edit that out, to edit those things, even in CG animation, just the amount of labor that goes into it and the amount of hands that that, that scene passes through also, possibly, you know, it could go through 10, 12 different people, 20 different people. So that's really important to note. And the other thing that the other kind of joyous thing that I thought was a lot of fun that I learned about this movie was that the team in their early 
you know, pre-production stages, did a lot of visual research for the film. And although the film, you know, the, the character designs are really cute and appealing, and there's obviously very cartoony and colorful, they're obviously very cartoony and colorful. They really wanted to know, and the artists and the animators really wanted to know and research the dinosaurs and may how they may have moved and their locomotion and their habits. And they wanted to portray the prehistoric environments with some level of reality as well even though it's cartoony and colorful and you have to you have to have a certain amount of suspension of disbelief and make and push things and exaggerate things and things things like that they obviously needed they obviously took a lot of liberties but they really strived for that foundation of reality and i think that's obvious in the film because although the characters are very cartoony you know they move with a gait they move with weight you know that rhymed yeah not intentionally not intentionally at all but and, you know, that sort of, I will, I always appreciate that sort of thoughtfulness and that sort of pre-production level of really, really strong visual research because that speaks to the final product and that speaks to wanting to put your money where your mouth is and spending the money where it's important and doing the proper, you know, sort of doing it in the proper layers, laying that foundation on before you do the animation and before you do the design and the story to know that we're going to have, you know, we're going to anchor this with some sort of believability as cartoony and colorful as it is. And I think that's really important. And they did that with this film. It's a, it's a really nice blend of cartoon, cartoony appeal and sort of realistic anatomy and movement. And I always appreciate that a bit, especially about something that we've never seen move. It's not like we could, it's not like animating a lion as hard as that is. We could watch, we could go to the zoo and observe the lion or watch live action footage for days of a lion, these were animals that weren't around. So to be able to sort of show that desire to get it right is really cool. It's awesome. Yeah. And it's a really fantastic movie. I don't want to talk. Yeah. Obviously about the sequels. I've never seen, I might have seen the first one. Maybe, maybe I saw the second one. I thought that I literally thought there was like three of them. Yeah. I I thought maybe, yeah, that seems like within the realm of reason. Cause I remember them coming out and being directed video and I I probably rented the second one. Right. Which is realistic. Something's popular. Mm the kids want to see the kids I mean the Lion know. King and and Little Mermaid and they all have sequels everything. It's not, even Disney movies almost have everything no, Pinocchio no. has a sequel right which is yeah I think terrible. so yeah more modern day sequel oh my god so this brings us to All Dogs Go to Heaven right right 1989 1989 which is another movie I remember liking but I don't really have a fondness for it I don't know that I've even seen it in the 90s or 2000s I remember yeah. watching this movie with you but again, this is, you know, you were five years old when this movie came out. You know, you could have been four when it when it came out. I'm not sure what month it came out. Yeah, and we had this movie on tape as well. Yeah, yeah and I remember watching it with you. I really like this movie. It's a very strange movie. It's a When you look at the story, we'll break down the story a little bit. You know, again, Don Bluth sort of returning to his animated musical fantasy comedy drama sort of formula. He's back to the musicals at the Land Before Time. They were definitely overlapping production with um land before time because it came out all dogs go to heaven came out the next year and it certainly didn't take a year to make (laughs) really beautifully done i love 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 the and i believe it's burt reynolds who does the voice of charlie b barkin right yeah i love the voice i love burt reynolds as an animated character i think it's wonderful and his his best friend charlie's best friend itchy of course dom de reprising his dom de for this movie this movie i love 
the it's a very strange film but there's a sequence in the beginning of the movie that opens the movie where they're escaping from the dog pound where itchy and charlie are escaping from the dog pound and i love it it's so funny dude it's amazing it's it's such it sets up the movie it's a lot more fun than the majority of the movie is it sets sets it up to be a little more fun than you know oh this is going to be a fun ride this movie and it's not entirely that but I love the beginning of it. The story, Kyle, with All Dogs Go to Heaven is set in 1939 in New Orleans in the bayou. It's centered around a German shepherd dog named Charlie B. Barkin and his best friend, Itchy, as they, it, it's Itchy, Itchyford, escape from the dog pound and return to their, they live on a, like a riverboat casino on the bayou. And it's a great breakout sequence. I love it. Charlie's former business partner, Carface is refusing to share in the casino profits with Charlie when he gets back out of, you know, he's supposed to be getting out of prison, but he's getting out of the dog pound, right? And he makes a deal with Charlie to just kind of leave with 50% of the casino's profits. This doesn't sound like a cartoon that I'm describing, does it? So far, right? No, it's not a little at all. strange. Yeah, yeah, not at all. He convinces Charlie to leave with 50% of the profits and buy him out. And Charlie agrees. But what happens is... He's later murdered by Carface, who runs down Charlie in a car, and Charlie goes up to heaven. Now, when Charlie goes up to heaven, he realizes that, why am I in heaven? That he's never done, like, a single good deed. He's kind of this hustler. He's this gambler. And how do I have a spot up here in heaven? Well, it turns out that all dogs go to heaven, and what happens is he steals the gold watch. It's like a gold watch that represents everybody's life in heaven, and he steals it. And he winds it and he returns to earth, but he's warned he escapes, but he's warned if he ever dies again, then he's going to go straight to hell. Okay, this is the story. And after reuniting with Itchy, after coming back to life, they learn that Carface, their enemy, Carface, former business partner, has kidnapped a girl named Anne Marie. And it's about their, you know, meeting this girl, Anne Marie, and rescuing her and their love for each other and what, you know, sort of running afoul of the bad guys. And that's where the adventure begins. Now, what the most pronounced thing about this film for me is really that story. It's a very adult in content. Yeah, it's strange. And this movie uses a lot of rotoscape rotoscoping for the for the which I don't like and I'll get into what rotoscoping is. We've been going long on this show, so I won't get too far into things, but Anne Marie is a human character, a little girl, and they use a lot of rotoscoping for her character, which is to say that they trace live action footage of the animation. They have a human actress do the various things that they need the character to do. And they literally trace the live action footage frame per frame. That's rotoscoping, which I'm not a big fan of rotoscoping. I'd rather have the live action footage and actually try to imbue it with some kind of personality rather than take the live action footage all day, but draw from it. Don't draw over it. So they use a lot of that in the movie, but The animal characters, again, very Dom Bluth-esque in the fact of very lush animation, beautiful effects, beautiful colors, using that colored gel sort of technique, beautiful character designs, and beautifully animated animal characters, which always spoke volumes to me. I mean, this is probably my least favorite of the, you know, his classic films, you know, from nim through this film this is probably my least favorite but i really do like this movie i I recommend it i think it's worth seeing and dom DeLuise adds a lot of charm to all his characters but burt reynolds is so charming as charlie and i think he does such a great job with the voice 
that it's worth seeing just for that. I think he's really, he's, you know, it's really kind of a sweet and charismatic but roguish character. And I love what Burt Reynolds sort of brings to that character. It's really, really wonderful. And that, you know, that's that that film was, you know, released theatrically. They really believed in it. It was released against The Little Mermaid, which I didn't realize it was released, as far as I know, on the same exact day Wow, as The Little Mermaid. So they were Bold. going head to head. And it didn't do very well upon its theatrical release. I think by that time, Disney's marketing machine was very hard to contend with. I don't think you could have, and I don't, and I don't think they could have contended with that. They were already building up that marketing muscle. I remember, I was old enough to remember in 1989 how well the Disney's Little Mermaid was marketed. They knew that was going to be the beginning of something new for them. And it didn't do very well in the theaters, but it did do very well on home video, which actually speaks to our resonance with the film because we had it on, on VHS. And in fact, it was the highest grossing VHS ever in 1990 up to that time Wow! of a children's video. Not only uh, animation, but live action too of a children's video. Interesting. Of a children's film. That was really a, a sort of a important one for me. You know, to to know, wow, they're really good on video. That's amazing. Yeah, people, it's super interesting. People realized how good it was in retrospect, I guess. And it's yeah. a good film. Yeah, I have. I mean, I haven't seen that movie in forever, so I don't even really. It's a lot of fun. It. It's just strange. It's a little heavy. You know, there's kidnapping. There's talks of going to hell. The dog. You know, you see characters dying. Characters obviously don't want to die, and that's portrayed. So it's very real. I saw it at an age where, you know, I was what. 15 years old, 16 years old, whatever I was. So for me, it was like, it was in that wheelhouse of like, okay, yeah, whatever. I, I was almost old enough to see rated R movies at that right, point. Right, right, right. Somebody like your age, I could see it being a little off-putting actually. Yeah, I don't really remember That's much a heavy about theme. feeling about it, like what, what I felt about it. I don't really remember, you know, like what my feelings are. Like I remember so clearly Amer an American tale and the land before time and how I feel and felt about those movies. But I don't know that I have any, and I don't, I, I at that time, I mean, it's hard to believe now with Lola, but I, at the time I had such a disconnect from dogs too. I was like, I don't, you know, I'm certain that that was the hook for a lot of young kids, but that wasn't the hook for me. I never thought you know? of that. That's true. That's yeah. a good point. Very good point. Yeah. So where does Don Bluth's career go from here? Cause it seems like it's, there's a couple more. Uh, I thought that he had a triumph with Anastasia. That, that's skipping ahead a little bit because there were some, direct-to-video ones after this right like that of yeah some he had flops. some there was some direct-to-video stuff in there that you know you have movies like well i mean we could start with the next films and talk about them a little bit um in 1991 you had the movie rockadoodle which you know i wasn't going to talk about the later movies because i think there's not the same strength as those initial movies for don bluth came out in august of 91 and it you know i don't know i think it did like 18 I want to say it did at the box office all told. At the box office, as far as I know, it did a little less than $12 million. And I think Don Bluth was sort of riding high on his Don Bluthness. But I think by this time, after people saw this movie, you know, it was based on a screenplay by another guy, David Weiss. And I think this movie was construed as being a little weak and a little odd. And I saw this movie for the first time in college only because I was really intrigued by it because I he always heard how bad it was. And it's a weird one. It's a weird one for sure. And then the next one, you go on to 1994, I believe it's the next one, with Thumbelina. And they, it's funny, Thumbelina has a weird, a weird sort of relationship with me because I've heard Don Bluth 
and Gary Goldman sort of both talk very highly about it and how popular the film was. I think why this film was so popular was, and I think they say this, was that this was their first film of the blue, you know, of the Bluth variety. This was their first film that was very popular with little girls. They never had, they hadn't had that up to this point. So I think this movie did a little better for them in, you know, it still didn't do very, it didn't cost very much to make. In, in fact, it was only $28 million, I think, that it cost to make. And they, they only made 11, a little more than $11 million at the box office. But what's more important to say about this was, this was one of those films I didn't even realize was a Don Bluth film. I had no idea this was Don Bluth, even in college. And I think because Don Bluth might have went through fits and starts with putting his name on things later on. If he wasn't proud of it, he didn't want it to be marketed as a Don Bluth film. I'm not sure that Thumbelina was one of those, but I know certain things. And this also, these these films, Thumbelina, we'll talk about The Pebble and the Penguin. These films were kind of coming out at a time, Pebble and the Penguin was in nine, uh, the next year in 95, were, were coming out with other animated films that studios like Warner and Turner were doing, like the Page Master and stuff like that. And it was hard to tell Don Bluth's movies kind of lacked that Don Bluth stamp for whatever reason. It was hard to tell what was his and what wasn't. I remember that period being very striking for me as far as like, is that Don Bluth or is that not Don Bluth? You know, I wasn't really sure about that. And then we arrive in 1997 with the film Anastasia, which came out during my senior year of art school, I think. And I remember this, and I think due to the confusion of everything after All Dogs Go to Heaven and like, and Rockadoodle, we knew that was a Don Bluth movie. I think after the confusion of what was a Don Bluth movie up to the late 90s and that mid 90s period, like, is Page Master a Don Bluth movie? Is The Pebble and the Penguin a Don Bluth movie? Fern Gully was oh, another yeah, one, right? Yeah, yeah. What's the Don Bluth movie? What's not? I have no idea. Some of that is Don Bluth's fault because he covered it up and took his name off things. When he later went on to realize he wasn't proud of what he was doing and stuff like that, as far as I as far as I know, Anastasia I thought was going to be a return to form. I remember us really thinking that it was going to be a return to form for Bluth, and that this was going to hearken in a new era, Secret of Nim like era of Don Bluth, and he's back, type of thing, and again sort of restating and sort of restating what he meant to us in art school. We really were into Don Bluth's films, especially The Secret of Nim. So for him to be coming back, we were really excited about it. And I remember markedly not liking this movie. Going to see it in the theater, I'm sure I dragged Helene to it. We were already dating by then. We saw all the animated stuff in the theater. I remember going to see Hercules and Pocahontas. We saw Mulan together. Mulan, all the Disney stuff. Which and I right remember going this. to see this. Titan. Later on, we'll talk about a little bit Titan AE and Treasure Planet and all that kind of stuff. I remember going to see this in the theater and not liking it. And I think it's because it's a very, again, it has that melancholy, colorless, dull, sort of lack of anything vibrant. It had a real lack of vibrancy and color. The only thing I remember responding to in this film, and I haven't, I have to admit by not, I haven't seen it in a long time was the character Bartok, which is like really the cartoony, he's the albino bat, and he's like sort of the fun character. And that was, for me, the only foothold I could get into this movie to really enjoy it. I thought it was a little too, rot- again, too rotoscopy, too realistic, too muted. There wasn't a lot of levity. 
you know, Bartok was really the only aspect of that film that I liked, which is interesting because there's not a lot of levity in The Secret of Nim, but it's very successful. Right, right. So maybe it's the anthropomorphic characters that are carrying it versus the human characters. Maybe that's just too dull. You know, the villain in this, I believe his name is Rasputin. Yeah, Rasputin's a real person. Right, he's based on a real yeah. historical figure. So he was kind of an interesting design. The designs are really lovely, but... Yeah, for me, I just wasn't really feeling this film. Do you do you remember how you felt about yeah, it? Yeah, I remember thinking that even at the time and even since then that it was an attempt to be a Disney movie. Yeah. Like you have a princess. A Disney I mean, princess. Because, I mean, 97, so you assume that this probably began production in 94. So I'm not going to say that they were watching necessarily everything, but you see Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, at least, and maybe, maybe Pocahontas. You know, you're obviously not getting to the point of Mulan or anything like that, you know, but I, I feel like this was an attempt when you really look at the rest of his catalog of movies. This one seems to be the most Disney-esque and probably the one that people I bet a lot of people thought it was a Disney movie. Right. Dustin Klein wrote in to us on Patreon like you guys can if you support us over there and said, anytime I get asked which Disney princess is my favorite, I always answer with Anastasia and proceed to laugh when the person asking blows up. So... <laughs> pissing off anima animation nerds everywhere. Now, what I do remember about this movie, I could be wrong about this. I have two memories about Anastasia's. I think okay. Allie really liked the movie, okay. if I remember correctly. And Allie had a bootleg version of it. That was mine. Oh, that was your bootleg version I of wanted it. to I tell sorry. you about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot we still have all it. about it. That bootleg version, I still have it somewhere with my VHS. Maybe I think it was Allie's because it was in her room on I that probably shelf. gave it to her. Yeah. Yeah, I probably gave it to her at a certain point. You know what that was, Kyle? That, this was a really interesting anecdote, actually, for me. I bought, obviously I was really into anime. We've talked about it on the show before. And I was really into anime in the 80s and early 90s when it was hard to obtain that stuff. And I got a lot of bootleg stuff from people that pirated it. And whether it was in Chinatown in New York or guys at conventions, you know, those lone guys at comic book conventions that had stacks and stacks of stuff that they dubbed on VHS over from Laserdisc and stuff. But one of those guys in Chinatown in New York had, amongst his bootlegged animes, he had a copy of Anastasia. Now, I knew Anastasia was coming out. I read all the animation mag publications and magazines. I was really excited for Anastasia. And he had a copy of Anastasia on VHS before it even had its theatrical release. And I was like, how the hell? What the hell is this? Now, it was terrible copy of it. It was the movie. It was Anastasia. But that is the first time I saw it. And it was in that plastic clamshell with like a really poorly pixelated Printed yeah, like, out, you yeah, know, boot, very bootleg, very like bootleg. Like it was yeah. obviously bootleg. He wasn't. He, there was no way he could have. It was it. like the movie poster, very primitively wrapped around, not literally, but primitively in digital wrapped around right. the box, basically, right, all yeah. pixelated. You yeah. remember? That's so funny that you remember that. And yeah, I, I do because it was on. It. I was on Ali's shelf. I always thought it was Ali's because it was on Ali's shelf in her room. Ali had like this built-in shelf at the very entrance of her room, and she, it was just full of videotapes, and that was one of them. You know, was Anastasia. Oh, that's right. At Dad's, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's funny. That's a funny one. But I don't really remember how I felt about it, about its quality. And I must say that with Titan AE, yeah. I didn't know until I was doing a little bit of research for this episode that I was even a Don Bluth movie. And I have never seen it. So You never saw it? No, no. Okay. I the what I the one thing I remember about it, it's not true, but the one thing I remember about it is that in the early, you know, Napster and WinMX days in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was the soundtrack for Titan AE was going around. And there was a song that was being claimed to be a 311 song from the soundtrack of Titan AE because Titan AE had like a real soundtrack. If it, I had pop, yeah, it had pop music. Yeah. And but it wasn't. It was just like a mismarked 
you know, whatever it was. That's funny. So that's what I remember about it. It was like I downloaded on Napster like it was like, you know, Titan AE soundtrack 311. I think they called it like Love Insanity or something like that, okay. which is not a 311 song. And But I downloaded it and was like, okay, cool. And then it's not <laughs> not at all a 311 song. So, you know, I think it ended up being a song called Love Insanity by a band called Fusion. And I don't think that the that is even in the movie at all. Oh, it's not. In Maybe. The movie. I don't know. I don't, I don't. I never saw it. So And who knows? Because they were really experimenting with putting pop music in this movie. I think they really were trying to get that sort of get a foothold into the older older kid audience and how it panned out from their original plans i'm not sure but you know it's important for me to talk about this movie call and we'll go into this a little bit i I just want to say the dom bluth laser disc games dragon's lair and space ace and dragon's lair 2 time warp are very very important to me they're some of my most in the things probably probably in my top 10 most inspirational inspirational content for wanting to be an animator and being a fan of something and i want to talk much more to them so me and colin colin and i sort of decided that we would do a separate show on those i trust me i could talk about dragon's lair and space ace for two hours i i promise you not to do that because we talked for so long about don bluth in general but i think i could talk about those two things for a long time but the reason i'm springing that up right now is because i want you guys we want you guys to know that we're going to cover those two things extremely important to me and some of my some of my favorite animated content ever, Dragon's Lair, especially Dragons, the first Dragon's Lair, and and Space Ace. I'm a huge fan. But the thing about Titan AE that ties into that notion is the fact that I thought that Titan AE was finally gonna be, a, first of all, it was a feature film, a science fiction, very much like Disney's Treasure Planet. It was gonna be a feature animated science fiction film, high budget animated traditionally animated film we were ecstatic about that we were like what this we're finally going to get we what we thought was we were finally going to get a feature length thing that was going to be like space ace okay which would have been much we'll go much more into this in the laser disc don blue you had a space ace poster prominently in your room i did i did i bought that in la when i lived there and i had that hanging in my studio you know in our studio in la for the animation studio i worked with when i in west la that i when i moved out there and i was really very much into the don bluth laserdisc games in the early 2000s so we went to go see this titan a when it came out i was living in la and we went to go see it every all the me myself and everybody who i worked with at the animation studio i was with and we were so disappointed by it because it just totally missed the mark of what we thought we were going to get, which was like a fun and cartoony thing like Space Ace with like a really cool over-the-top villain and really kind of like campy but really cool at the same time, like a Dirk the Daring or like a Dexter from Space Ace. We thought we were going to get this really cool, which is, again, like the, the type of formula that you don't get a lot, like just cartoony enough but also comic booky enough to be cool. And we thought that's what this movie was going to be. And this movie was just... it. You know, the the quality of the voice acting with the Matt Damon and the Nathan Lane and the Drew Barrymore and everything like that, and the quality of the beautifully realized animation and all of that, it didn't matter because it was just, it just lacked that inherent heart. And it lacked everything that made those Laserdisc games so wonderful and memorable. And I was so disappointed for right or for wrong, personally, because I really thought that's what we were going to get. I really thought we were going to get, finally get that Dom Bluth formula of the way a cartoon an animated feature should look you know we always wished for a you know and we'll get much more into this when we do that don bluth episode later on we always wished for a full-length dragon's lair how cool would that be 
you know, when we got Anastasia, it was like, why can't we just get a feature length space ace? Now Don Bluth and his partners have been, and Gary and everybody have been working on kickstarting a full length feature film of Dragon's Lair. And, you know, brought it over to Indiegogo in 2016 and actually got it funded. So I'm not sure where that stands right now, but they were trying to work on that. But that's what we were going to, we thought we were going to get with Titan A. And I remember being such a marked disappointment. You know, that was like, oh, I thought this was going to be like a cool, like, space ace thing, only like for an hour and 45 minutes instead of a video game. I can't wait to talk to you about Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, especially Dragon's Lair, because you and I have such a huge difference of opinion on those as oh, yeah. not as a beautiful piece of art, which they are, yeah, but gorgeous. as a game. Like, yeah. I can't stand Dragon's Lair. I can't it stand it. <laughs> like, it's, I, I reviewed it at IGN, actually. The, what I don't know, it was maybe the 20th anniversary edition, because in 83, no, that can't be. Maybe the 30th anniversary edition. They released it on PS3, I think, and okay. Xbox 360, and I reviewed it. And I had never played it before. I had watched like YouTube videos and talked to you about it. And I, I, I think I gave it like I think I gave it a four out of Did 10. Did you really? Yeah. And it infuriated people. Like there were certain classic games. I think Another World was another game that's like a really beloved game for some fucking reason. That game sucks. But I, I they released the 20th anniversary of that game and I gave it like a four as well and called it bad. And people fucking lost it. Oh, people were upset. Yeah. So it was the same thing with Dragon's Lair. But my whole thing was just like. Well, we'll save it for the show, but I found it I, I found it annoying to play on console, and I couldn't imagine how predatory that shit was in in the arcade. Oh, you know? it was so predatory. So I'm, but I'm not denying it's beauty. It's abject, oh, well, you're not foolish enough beauty. to get suckered in by that, though. But yeah, but I mean, it's we'll save that. Yeah, we'll save yeah, that yeah, for yeah. another time. We'll, Absolutely, it's the, very important to yeah. talk about. I can't wait to talk about that. I love that. I love when we don't agree on things. So that's that's fun. yeah, that'll that's be fun. fun. Yeah, absolutely. which actually, did I tell you, Derek? Our, our brother-in-law, Derek, and our nephew, Declan, who listens to, listen to the show religiously. They're, they're avid listeners. Sorry for all the off-color jokes. <laughs> <laughs> they think that we don't disagree enough. Oh, interesting. And I said, really? Because we disagreed on some stuff on the last batch. Mayonnaise. Yeah, that's, that's, un, that's intolerable. Mayo. Intolerable. Intolerable. That's not even a word. Intolerable. intolerable would be the word that I'm looking for. Oh, that's an interesting. Well, I'm going to see them in a couple days from when we're recording this, so I'll have to get that feedback. So they'll Hopefully they like the, the show otherwise, though. They love it. It makes they me a little nervous it. that Derek listens to the show because he's really? such. Yeah, because Derek and Dana, our sister Dana, Derek, we've known for what, 22 years now or whatever. They are so up on everything pop culture and yeah. everything like, you know, Derek is an encyclopedia of a lot of stuff. Maybe not to our extent with some nerd culture stuff, but generally speaking, yeah, he can hang on this show any day of the week. And yeah, it makes me a little nervous that he listens to the show. You know, <laughs> is he fact checking? Well, Dana and Ali. So, well, Ali specifically certainly is fact checking. Again, wanting to do an entire, she wants to do an entire addendum to the Lord of the Rings. Well, episode. she was upset that we didn't mention certain characters and stuff like that. What do you want us to do on a fucking ninety to one hundred and twenty? Do you see podcast? the size of those books that are on the shelf over there? We did. We talked about it for two hours. <laughs> Yeah, it's like we can't. You know, so I want to do an episode with her, and we, we I think I'm going to do one with her this week. I don't know what we're going to do it on, but. It's funny because she wanted to do an addendum on the Lord. I'm like, we can't do that, Allie. We can't do an addendum on the episode we just did. You know, but I think that she could just read it. Yeah, she, yeah, just read it aloud. On the, <laughs> and Dana book. listens to the show, too. And what did she text us about recently? She texted us about. Oh, uh, it was about um, was it The Sopranos or no, no Mad Men. Was it Mad Men or I, was it um, Breakfast Club? Oh, The Breakfast Club. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she was. She had some issues with that episode, I think. So, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Okay, everybody I we did a really good job on that episode. I thought we did, too. I thought that was one of our better episodes. I liked to be it a lot. You know, it's funny because I think most of the episodes, there are a few episodes where I thought I was like, uh, you know, we, you and I reflect after we record. Usually we go out to eat or whatever. And as we're going to do after this and 
there are a few episodes where I'm like, ah, I think we could have done that one better. And then no one would know what episode. I'm yeah, not even going to say I which ones they way. are because I think that like. I constantly feel that way. You and know, you just, listen. Well, I edit them so I know exactly what they say. And then I send them to you and you listen to them. You know, only once have you ever had a note for me, which was a very useful note. What was it? It was one of the first episodes. I, you know, so we record on H4Ns, individual H4Ns to get multiple channels. And in Adobe Premiere, I have to do what's called filling left with right. Or you can fill right with left, depending on what channel you've occupied. These are recording in stereo, but record all to one channel nonetheless as if they're mono. So I have to fill them using this like module so that it comes out on both speakers in a stereo format. And I, for, you know, I cut them up. So I forgot to do it on the last 10 minutes of one of the episodes and then just assumed it was fine. And you had hit me up like in just in the nick of time. Oh, that, like, oh, I that remember it was that. All t- that it sounded tinny. And I'm like, well, it sounds tinny because it's nothing. Nothing's coming out of the left speaker on your computer. Oh, all yeah. right. Yeah. So, oh, I remember saying that. Yeah, I never caught. You, you never know, had a note otherwise. Right? I never caught another mistake in the show. I, well, because I cut out anything. I very meticulously edit these podcasts to try to cut out any ums or uhs that I can. Not, we can't get all of them because there's a lot of clipping in the audio. So you get pops and stuff if you do that. You right. Can't, there's some things you just can't remove. Can't do it. But for me, I just edit it meticulously and I try to edit it for content, too. Like there are things I fact check for us, like where I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Something I said or something you said and I remove it if it's not true and stuff right, like that. Right, so, right. you know, there should be few notes. I try to, you know, I I care a great deal about the show. So I want it to be you do to, to be great. You, you know, do, it, and you it, work it, hard. It makes me sad because well, it doesn't make me sad. I'm so pleased that everyone listens to everything. But I fireside chats, which is just an interview series, does better than the show. I really want knockback and knockback is growing, by the way, like. It's growing. I showed you the stats. It's it's growing every month. But I, I think Knockback should be bigger. I think it's a great retro podcast and one of the biggest retro podcasts in the world, actually, on iTunes. But we can do better. Oh, absolutely. We're going to get better every time. That's yeah. a promise. So continue to please, you know, share our show with your friends and family. Not your enemies, because I don't want, you know, that going on. <laughs> what with about you. your frenemies? Your frenemies. Keep your friends further away than your enemies that's a, 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 circu- a serpentine way of saying the same thing <laughs> but Dagan uh appreciate you thank you very much you did, it was you know great what, should we do the lightning oh round? that's right i, I got i'm like really not on this my game a, with well, this. we've been recording for a long time yeah well, no let's do the lightning round really quick okay. and then we'll get the hell out of here go have a cheeseburger Absolutely. or whatever the case. you're gonna get another burger tonight dude that burger was that really just hit the, i don't know man i just everything about that diner meal hit the spot for me last night i, I don't usually clear my plate no, I noticed that you you did. I ate everything on that manja, plate. Manja, manja. Because I, I usually I try to do the I always make people laugh saying this. I try to do the miraculous thing of stopping eating when I'm full, and you know which is hard for me because I really would you know people forget that I was probably 25 pounds heavier than I am right now. I I like to eat. Yeah, me too. And I'll eat just because well, I'm bored, and I'll eat just because it's in front of me, and oh, I'll me I'll do it all day. I'm guilty. And so of I really that. have to cognizant like I I think about my next meal while I'm eating the meal I'm eating at the at the current time and all that kind of stuff. I'm crazy with that shit. And so I was just so hungry and it just hit the spot. And you know what hits the spot the most mm. is the coarse black pepper that they have at diners. Yeah. You know, I love black pepper. Yeah. yeah and they yeah. have that. You know, I don't like the fine powdery black pepper, like but the, the coarse stuff. black pepper putting on French fries and on oh, your burger. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's perfect. Oh, it's so good. And the onion rings are really You're good. You're making too. me hungry right now. No, we're going to be there. We have to go out into this fucking coldest, uh, uh, which yeah, is yeah, tit yeah. shit going on outside. It's cold out there tit right shit. now in Philly, my friends. Oh, my God. Dude, I. It really is. It brings it's me cold. back to those Boston, those heady Boston days. <laughs> anyway, let's do the lightning round of doom. All right, here we go. You got now, the timer? Got the timer. Got the timer of the lightning round of doom, my friend. Don Bluth, 
And again, we're going to do Space Ace and Dragon's Lair in the future, but there are some Space Ace and Dragon's Lair things in here. We'll just have to deal with it. Yeah, what, I, was, I was wondering why you were doing that. You're, you're, are you cheating over there? No, you, no, you no cheating. Over... No padding it. Uh, these are the days of our lives. Let's go. <laughs> you ready? Mm-hmm. Disney or fuck Disney? Disney. Mice or rats? Mice. Rats are fucking horrifying. Okay. Daphne or Kimberly? This is Space Ace or Dragon's Lair question. Daphne. Daphne's Sci-fi hot. or fantasy? <sighs> Sci-fi. Dirk the Daring or Dexter from Space Ace? Dexter. Cooler character. Singe the Dragon or Borf, who's the villain from Space Ace? I don't even remember Borf, so I'll go He's, Singe the Dragon. Singe is so cool. Favorite kind of dinosaur? Stegosaurus. Good answer. Thank you. All Dogs Go to Heaven or American Tail? American Tail. Play Dragon's Lair or just watch some guy with a mullet play Dragon's Lair? Watch a guy with the mullet. Dom DeLuise or Don Rickles? Dom DeLuise. <laughs> talking people or, do- or talking animals? Talking animals. You got it. I think I ran out of time, but uh, you know. Did you? But these are the days we'll of our lie. lives. We'll lie, though. Like, no, he didn't. Like sand through the hourglass. So are the days of our lives. I hope that mom can again show me the man being buried alive on days of our lives like I was when I was four years old while she was folding laundry. So between that and fire in the sky... Oh, no, it was the uh, cannibal movie that she took you to go see. Yeah, Alive. Oh, oh, God. Yeah, she took me. To, yeah, we saw Alive together. That was also really great. Watching people that. eat other people. It might as well have been a, a documentary about the Donner Party. <laughs> you know, so which, by the way, I just watched a documentary about the Donner Party. Not as interesting as I remember the Donner Party being. Really? Know? Yeah, that's a, kind of boring. Yeah, it's like, OK, they were on the trail out west. They got caught in the mountains and they ate each other. OK, that's fine. You know what's interesting, Kyle? I was just looking at my notes here, and I realized I talked about we talked about earlier, you know, sort of Ron Miller, who was the president of Disney at the time. All the Bluth stuff was going on. He was a he was an actually a professional football player. I forgot about that. Who do you play for? I don't know. It doesn't hmm. say. Interesting. Very interesting. But I, you could see him. He's huge. Maybe he's a lineman or something. Yeah, he's a huge dude. He was supposedly a, a disagreeable dude as well. He swole. Huh? He's swole, as some might swole. say. He's swole. We're recording this on a Saturday night. I'm going to try to watch the Jets game. As I haven't missed the Jets game in many years. Oh, yeah. How are you going to work that out? Well, I haven't. I can watch it on my phone because I have NFL or NFL Sunday ticket. Oh, okay, okay. But tomorrow will be the first Sunday in many years okay. that I don't watch football all day. And I'm kind of looking forward to it because I, oh. it, I feel like a fucking slave sometimes to football on Sundays. You like, enjoy it. Yeah. I really do. I move the second TV into my into the living room on Sundays and I play games while I watch football. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Yeah, I, I play like games I don't have to pay attention to, like, you know, collectathons. Like I, I platinum Spyro and Spyro 2 remake while watching football. Wow. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed. It's kind of sad. I'm kind of horrified. It's a little sad because we have this multitasking culture. I can't sit still. If I'm like I tweeted out about it a few weeks ago and a lot of people said that they really understood what I was saying. Yeah, because I was saying like. I am obsessed with multitasking. Like, ask Aaron, like, I'm obsessed with it. Like, doing multiple things, having things going on. I can't multitask at all. Like, I'm rendering a video, the laundry's going, the dishwasher's going, I'm, like, scrubbing the counter, I go to the grocery store, I order Uber Eats so I can time it when I get back, I do all that shit. And I was reflecting that I had this awesome multitask going on a few weeks ago, like, this amazing, dynamic, seven-part multitask. It was amazing. You know, the Postmates guy was on his way. You know, I had, you know, the weed coming for delivery. I had... You know, the dishwasher going, the, the video was rendering for the next day. I was listening to a podcast, getting that, banging that out. And I forgot to do something like put the dryer on. Okay. And I was crestfallen. Oh. I was like, oh, and there's no the reason why. Like, I, you know, I actually there's a, a thought that 
multitasking actually takes more time. Right. That like you focusing on all these things is actually not wise. But for me, I feel like I'm doing a lot. And I only bring that up because I can't play ga- like I don't often nine out of ten times that I'm playing a video game. Yeah, I'm not listening to it. Like unless it's like a narrative driven game I've not played. Before. I can't do that. Like so if it's like The Last of Us, I'll play The Last of Us in complete silence. Right. Wow. Or something or Bioshock. But no, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, so I can hear it. I, oh, I should be. OK, I see. But if I'm playing like Spyro or I'm like collecting things in an Assassin's Creed, I'm not Assassin's Creed, it's not a good example, or like Far Cry or something. Right. I'll have a podcast going because I feel like I need to be doing like I need to wow. be banging shit out. Wow. I have this huge list of podcasts going back to like June that I'm still behind on. OK. That are not necessarily, you know, Joe Rogan experience and all these things, you know, waking up with Sam Harris and everything. Yeah. And I can only get to my football podcast. I'm a month behind on my Islanders podcast. This shit stresses me out. <laughs> But the crazy thing is, is that I, because I'm always doing audio editing, usually I can't do what you do, which is you listen to your YouTube and your podcast as you're, I can't, as because, I'm I'm, because nine yeah. out of 10 times, again, 90% of the time I'm using audio. You so, have to use the audio. So I have to find these moments. That's hard. That's like when I have to lip sync a character talking to audio, that's the time. And those are the times I, I have to, I really have to listen to the audio cues and animate to a soundtrack and I can't listen to stuff. I hate it. That's why I hate it. I don't care about the monotony of making a character lip sync frame by frame. I'll do that all day. It's just that I can't listen to anything while I'm doing that. Yeah, it's rough. Oh, it's the worst. So anyway, that was a totally extraneous thing. This might be one of the longest episodes we've done, I think. Longest episode ever. You're welcome, Don Bluth. Don Bluth, you son of a bitch. See that? And I got to tell you that <laughs> when I was looking at when I was looking at Don Bluth's pictures, I realized that I always thought Don Bluth. I know the difference between Dom DeLuise and Don Bluth, but I always thought Don Bluth was Dom DeLuise. No way. Yeah, Are you at, kidding me? 100%. Really? When I saw a picture of Don Bluth, I'm like, what? And then I started Googling him, and I'm like, that's not Don Bluth. And then I Googled Dom DeLuise, and I'm like, oh. Oh. I thought Dom DeLuise was the the physical encapsulation on this earth of Don Bluth. That That means you thought Don Bluth was in Cannonball Run. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Can we just close on that? Yes. That's amazing. Uh, we will close on that. Thank you so much for listening to Knockback. Remember to support us on Patreon if you can. It's really important that we get support over there on Patreon to continue to do our show. It means a lot to us, and you can get early access and a lot of other perks if you do support us over there. Remember, of course, you're more than welcome to listen to free feeds as well. If you do that, please leave us a nice review on the podcast service of your choice. Share us with your friends, family, etc. Help us find new audiences. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Goodbye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Morgan Ashley, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanicos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gagian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa Al Raisi, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kitredge, Christian Larson, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lou and Ray 
Loper, Colin Love, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinchin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Midling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Atenogenis Rojas, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholes, Christopher Schaefer, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Joshua Smallwood, John Tamanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Curen, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayant, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Supershot ST, Ethan, Throw7, Infinite, Barrick, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Titus Rex, Donk2015, Gavin, and Random Guy Radio.